This podcast is brought to you by Wondershare. Click the link below in the description to support Moore's Laws Dead. This helps the channel a lot and to try Wondershare for free. And it is also brought to you by CDKeyOffer.com. Use offer code BROKENSILICON to get 25% off all Windows software and die shrink for 3% off everything else. And then it is also, also brought to you by Vite Ramen. Use offer code BROKENSILICON to get 10% off Tasty Vite Ramen. We'll talk about these sponsors later. But for now, let's just get on with the show. Welcome to Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom, and today I'm joined by a guest who I believe has been on three times before. I believe this is number four, and because of that, I'm sure you've introduced yourself. Well, I'm sure I'm sure it's you've introduced yourself at least three times. You've been on three times before. That would stand a reason. But, you know, for those who haven't um, listened to those episodes yet, please tell people who you are, what you do, and then... You know, besides your main like professional role, why you know so much or at least pay attention so much to graphics architectures? Sure. Um, Yeah. So I'm Brian Heemskirk. I'm the art director at Massive Damage Games. Uh, I've been there for eight years, I think. Seven. I don't know. It's getting so long. I've worked in the game industry for 11 years now. Uh, Started mobile, went into more indie games, shipped two games that did fairly well on Steam. that you know got over eighty percent positive reviews, which is hard to do. And uh, I, in regards to how I got into hardware, I've, I've always built my own computers. I've always been obsessed with games and art. So, and I've always, I guess, if I was to look at it, I've loved the potential of what games could be. And mm-hmm. for the longest time, games were so married to hardware. So. Like a game was almost always saying as much about the hardware it was running on as it was about whatever it was trying to achieve itself. And I I love those games that pushed the limits of what any specific hardware could do, what feature sets or whatnot, and then learning about it and then guessing what was going to happen with hardware next. And uh, even you know, going to art school and whatnot, I wasn't sure if I was going to go into games, but I loved games so much that it just naturally turned out that that's where most of my passion went. So art and games together was kind of what drove me. So yeah, I almost wonder, like, especially five years from now, if there will be less or more interest in the hardware itself from the typical gamer, because I wouldn't be surprised if it was less. Like, I think back, I mean, I think back to almost as far as I, can remember playing games and thinking to myself god you know it'd be really cool if like this world war ii game had more than like three german or japanese soldiers on screen <laughs> like in this massive battle that's supposedly happening here yeah, and like yeah. and thinking about the games where they would have like battles in jungles i mean all of like the ps1 ps2 era jungles usually were just a hallway with a picture of a jungle on <laughs> yeah. the basically drywall and then there were games like like i remember the game mercenaries mm. uh man that had a lot of stuff going on on screen 
for a game that ran on basically every console, which is kind of impressive when I think about how many games back then had trouble with like more than five people being on screen. And, you know, going into that, you just start wondering like, oh, they literally can't do it. That's why they're only showing four enemies in every room and there's a hallway between every house because they have to load the next area. And I wonder if like gamers will even care what their hardware is anymore when, frankly, even with like, I, I think pretty soon I might be reviewing some like multiple types of like compact APU systems. And honestly, if you give these things enough RAM and turn down the resolution, they can probably play any game. Oh yeah. Well, and at least currently we're kind of at that generational shift, which is going to make things a little complicated for a window of time before hardware solves it again. But it's, I, you're right. I think it's kind of funny because when you think of um, my wife and my older, my my one son is playing Grandia together right now, and it looks so different on Dreamcast. Sorry, on Sega Saturn and PlayStation One, just because like Saturn was a nightmare and they had like crazy water effects using the secondary chip, whereas on the PS One they had to use more traditional effects, and then the ground looks completely different because the texture memory they had to cut it in half. So, but they didn't bother to remap the UVs. So you end up with the textures not aligning to the ground on the PlayStation 1 version. You had to make all of these strange compromises in games because the hardware was so different. When you watch game comparisons today, it's, you know, shadows turned down by one notch in a lot of the things. Or you're seeking the differences. Oh, ambient occlusion is missing in this little nook here on one platform versus the other. The shadow cascades are at this uh, this day, uh, distance, whereas they're slightly. Further, I mean, I think I some Nintendo sixty four games just like didn't have voice acting because they couldn't fit the audio files that they could on the PlayStation yeah, or something. Just the capacity, right? The capacity of the actual cartridge itself. They they didn't have room, and when they did pull it off, it was using crazy compression or really interesting ways to reconstruct audio, like uh, the Resident Evil two re uh, re release on the N sixty four a couple of years later from the PS one one. They had to do so many compromises just to get that to work. But yeah, it's, it is interesting. Like, I think gamers will be somewhat less interested in hardware. And this is something I was kind of hoping to talk to you at some point in time. Maybe we'll get into it a bit later. But I'm curious with the giant GPUs we're seeing now, like, as far as I'm concerned, 4080 and above and like 60, sorry, 7900 XTX and those level of GPUs, we're no longer, I don't think, we're hardware limited than we have been in a really long time. Like yeah. the amount of power there, it's, I feel like it's the, the engines and the use of features that are bottlenecking us and the disparate nature of the hardware itself. That's bottlenecking game development. Like I'm pretty sure that those three cards, if they were in a console or isolated or built perfectly <laughs> for it, could make a game that looked pretty close to real or deceptive enough that you wouldn't care about levels beyond that when we're talking of that level of hardware. So I'm starting to get suspicious that NVIDIA and AMD are realizing that there's going to be a point in the next five or six years where it's going to be harder to sell hardware that's better than other hardware. And it might be why they're afraid to move the like 40, 70 level up as much. Or the, and we've seen the biggest gap between the 4090 and the 4080 in terms of theoretical performance compared to previous generations. Because... I feel like they're they're literally trying to put a stake in the low end, mm-hmm. so that, and this just that's me estimating or guessing. I don't know whether it's true or not, but it's a sense I'm getting because otherwise, how are we going to differentiate between hardware when 
you can kind of offer reality on one end. They almost want to put less than reality on the other end and be able to sell hardware in between it. And if we just keep pushing beyond that... Now, there's a lot of ways that games are cheating right now, and better hardware would be able to offset beyond Mm -hmm. that. And then we could be doing things a little bit more accurately on the game engine and the dev side, where we wouldn't have to cut as many corners or rebuild things. And there's there's a lot of specific avenues I could get into that. And I think some questions will probably direct me in that way. But no, but, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's obvious. I, uh, you know, upgraded to a 5950X. So Zen 3, just because, you know, I'm on AM4. When yeah. I put my 4090 in, because uh, I got a good deal on it. And I'm like, am I really going to run a 4090 with Zen 2? And there's no game I play where both aren't the issue. Like the 5950X, some games like Battlefield 2042, like in Rush and 128 players when they add that every now and then, like for like a weekend event, like, yeah, that'll that'll tax the CPU to like 40% usage or maybe 50% or or more. But it's it's not at 80. And the 4090 in every game is like at 70% 70% usage or more. Yeah. And let's be honest, I'm turning up settings half the time that I really don't need to turn up. Like you can see how honestly every game I play, most of my hardware is bottlenecked by just probably the engine or the communication between all the components in my PC because none of them are at 100%. The RAM's not maxed out. And yet you'll still get games, of course, where I'm sure it's a single threading or engine bottleneck, like an Age of Empires 4, where you know, when you have eight players with like 200 plus soldiers on screen, like it still drops to like 60 frames or something. And that's, there's nothing I can do to fix that, really. I mean, maybe I could get a 7950X3D or something and that might yeah. get me there. But, you know, I, I don't think it's really the CPU that's the issue if the engine was a little more efficient. I, I think I've, I've talked to you a lot about this, just me and you messaging each other. But, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's just, it's engines and APIs right now that are stopping this hardware from, well, engines, APIs in the disparate nature because like PCs being built as several separate components in space separated from each other is seeming very inelegant now mm-hmm. in comparison. So yeah, it's much more powerful than a PS5 or a Series X, but it's also way less elegant in how it's constructed. And Stuff has to be copied between memory sets over and over and over again and passed back and forth. And then a lot of times we're seeing stutters, we're seeing all of these like hardware things. I've I've had a I think I've had the least satisfactory experience I've ever had playing PC games on the best hardware in the last two years as well. Just from I don't know, from my perspective, it's from I, I think I think generally speaking, it's gotten better. I mean, smoother. I, and it's hard for me to say because I just don't know how much I'm forgetting because my memory is that PCs had tons of issues twenty years. Oh, yeah. Like I don't know. I, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm honestly in awe how much I just can boot up and play a game. The, I, I, th- I, I, what I might suggest though is, twenty years ago, console was a nightmare. Uh, Well, kind of, actually. You know, you had these blips like the N64 and arguably even the PS2, even though that had load times, were like, for being honest, though, there were no patches. You just put it in and it worked. Or it didn't work and it would never work because there were no patches. Yeah, Um, SNES games ran at 60 FPS. They were pretty good. But but outside of that, I mean, then you get to the PS3 era that brought incredible 
and the 360, they brought incredible stuff for the money, but didn't work. I mean, games yeah. froze so often back then. I mean, it was <laughs> constant on constant. Crashing. Yeah. Um, and then the PS4 kind of got better. But then I think something's happened here where that entire time I was talking about between, especially after PS2 and before PS5, you had PCs just felt smoother, worked better, even though they certainly weren't as good as now, in my opinion. But the problem now that I think makes PCs issues stand out is that the consoles work so freaking well that now the PC stands out. Like, yes, like PCs are becoming a little more like consoles but consoles became more like pcs and then stopped and now there's certainly issues occasionally don't get me wrong here but most of the time you just download or put the disc in and install it and the console just runs whether it's xbox or playstation and there can be hitches here and there of course but i don't know it's not like with pc where i have to download three different launchers and then like you know shader like optimize the shaders it's just an it's 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 frankly ridiculous and how powerful these systems are that they're starting to become the time from click to play is getting longer on pc now once you're in the game it works but it's getting longer and on console it keeps getting shorter i feel like oh ps5 games are nuts sometimes in that regard like a second or two on some of the the really well optimized ones for the hardware what, I mean, we talked about that in the past too, just the that ASIC they put in the PS5 to decompress and compress assets. And some of those things, I know uh, NX Gamer was talking about this, I know me and you were messaging about it too, but some of the last, especially big single-player releases on PC, I've I had a lot of frustrations trying to play them. And I, I don't think it's optimization issues. I think that it's a byproduct of consoles having you know a shared memory pool not having to write things and i mean uh graphics acceleration the the rate of growth on gpus has been amazing the rate of growth on cpus has been good the rate of growth on memory systems and storage has been much slower and then when you're dealing in an ecosystem on pc where because you have you know, the memory separate and then a GPU pool of memory separate and then you have your storage and the game is constantly unpacking and sending data from one, transferring it to the other back and forth. Both can't access it simultaneously the same way they can on console. Then what's happening is in these big single-player games where when you're going through big areas and you're loading the next chunk and it's it's constantly passing these massive textures over and over again and it's it's passing it multiple times between memory systems, the fact that the exponential curve on memory and storage hasn't been as fast as on, especially on GPUs, then we're getting stuttering. We're getting all of these things where sudden lurches in frame rate or things just waiting to operate, or even sometimes it's generating frames, but it's not actually, it's still lurching you. And then you play the same thing on PS5 and it's less noticeable in those areas. It feels much more streamlined. And we're in this weird situation where you can build a hardware, and if you're playing like Halo Infinite on multiplayer, you're going to be laughing on PC. You can, like I was just playing it on my computer last night, and I was at like 300 frames per second locked at all times at max settings, and mm-hmm. that felt amazing. But I bet the campaign doesn't feel as good, which is funny, because when you play multiplayer maps, it's all contained. You've loaded everything that you need in memory Especially already. Especially in a game like Halo, where it's a smaller map, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So 
we're getting kind of in an interesting space in terms of the types of games people are making and what is trying to be achieved and then whether the the fundamental setup of PCs where you have you know this is something i said to you a bunch of times but it feels like we're in hardware heaven and you know API engine hell and bottleneck hell on PCs with shader compilation stutters and lots of data passing, waiting for things, and then making it really hard to get perfectly streamlined. Because you could have a game where you have like 180 frames per second, and then you go down a hallway, and then all of a sudden it lurches to 40 for a bunch of chunks in a row, and then it shoots back up to 200. And that feels really weird to play on PC. Let's get into that now, then. Let's skip ahead to... Something I wanted to bring up is I'm trying to think what the first one was. Forspoken definitely comes to mind. Um, uh, some people would bring up Spider-Man, but to me that game seems to actually run really, really well for what yeah. it achieves. It just you know needs a decent CPU. <laughs> um, but you know there was that, and then I think Callisto Protocol and Dead Space remake, and there was another one recently as well. I forgot which Plague's Tale. I experienced that with. There was even on the indie side, there was Scorn, where I tried to boot it up on PC right away, and it was giving me on really high end hardware, and I was mm-hmm. lurching, and then I just like well, I felt like playing the game a bit, so I put it on the Series X, and it played very, like perfectly right away, and I'm like, oh, thank goodness, because I was getting stuttering all through that. I don't know if it just wasn't doing shader compilation stutter, so the very beginning of the game is going to lurch until it loads everything into... Mm-hmm. I Like, it compiles all the shaders so that you can play it properly, but it was just so unbearable playing through that first section that I switched to console. Um, but that's what... Yeah, that's what I'm bringing up. It's like, it does seem to me, and you've said this, NX Gamer was just on. He's friends with a lot of game developers, and he does... I mean, honestly, he's, he's a programmer himself that works in servers, so the guy yeah. knows a ton about this type of stuff. Like, when I actually ask what I would consider experts, I reached out to a, a contact I have at Infinity Ward. It's funny, you guys are all saying the same thing, though. You're like, mm, no, you've seen this in six out of six of the recent releases, because there is an issue we're running into trying to make things run smoothly on PC right now. It's not lazy ports or i guess that kind of be a question i have for you how much of it is and i'm not going to call it laziness how much of it could have been fixed if they would have done something differently and how much of it was them trying to just get the lesser of like three evils like if one evil on one side i would imagine is oh you need to have 64 gigabytes of ram and 16 gigs of vram and then and a, and a pc in a gen 4 ssd and we'll have zero issues and the side over here is well it can run on everything but it's limited to 30 frames to me, I'm getting this feeling like devs have this middle they've chosen where it's like, we're targeting 16 gigs of RAM, we're targeting 8 gigabytes of VRAM, you need an SSD, kind of, and we're just going to try to make it so the hitches aren't below 60 frames. But of course, at this point, almost all enthusiast PC gamers are at 120 hertz, so they still notice it. Um, like, What do you think is really going on there, though? You'll fix 50 to... Even the highest-end hardware will fix 50 to 60%, I would guess, of the mm. problems, but it's not fixing all of them. And that's where, like, my computer is crazy fast and I have a 700 uh, megabyte per second SS, 7,000, sorry. Like, I maxed out Gen 4 spec, NVMe drive, uh, under um, custom timings on my memory, everything, and I still get hitching and lurching Mm -hmm. sometime, right? Like, so, 
you could fix some of them, but the, you could, there's always a way to optimize below it, but maybe not without compromising your vision. So then the question is, you know, yeah, you can make things a lot uglier and that's one way to optimize. You can not have the effects in that area. You cannot have as much texture density or detail in that area. Those are options developers have because games didn't do that five years ago because they weren't trying as much mm-hmm. and they weren't aiming for as high resolution displays or as high frame rates. You know, what a 1080p 60 monitors are pretty normal four or five years ago instead of, you know, 1440p 4K. 240 hertz monitors that we're seeing now. So you're making things for different specs and you can't really, you can't optimize 100% of it. There are situations that you'll take care of by just throwing hardware at it. But this is really more of a byproduct of just how PCs are just a lot of really powerful separate components and consoles aren't. So you have the ability to make games and consoles that don't have any shader compilation because you just compile for that hardware, then you're not mm-hmm. worrying about that. So then if you're doing it on PC, it means that you're compiling everything at the beginning. So you have to either make them wait a really long time or try to do it via gameplay. Those are options you have. But then when you're loading a big new area, and because, like, to be honest, playing around and I've been working in on a game that will be showing hopefully in the next six months. I think it looks pretty good. But the level of geometric detail that's unavailable to us now is absolutely insane. Mm-hmm. We can put so much geometry in scenes now using modern hardware. Like geometry isn't a bottleneck anymore. There's aspects of putting that stuff into the game that are bottlenecking hardware. The textures that come onto it are more of a problem than the geometry mm-hmm. now. And the collision on it is even more of a problem. We're, we're more focused on all of the calculations done around collision than the visual aesthetic of rendering that much geometry. So there's kind of more. Well, yeah, the more good, the better your geometry is, the more work I imagine it takes to make collision work in a way that looks correct too. I mean, well, yeah, I mean, you used to have to do basically nothing to make it look okay because geometry was like, everything was a square. square. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. A square rectangle. But now you're dealing with ridiculously complex objects and they look right in space. And then the question is how much clipping do you allow? You have to optimize your game for all of these things. So when we're talking about making a game that doesn't hitch at all on PC, it's, you could say, Oh, well it's to some extent, it's going to hitch more on low end hardware, but also it might be less noticeable because the difference between when the frame rate stalls and the actual gameplay are not as far apart. So if you're playing on lower end hardware, you're not going to suddenly drop from, you know, 200 frames per second to 40 and then back up to 240. You're going to go from like 60 to 40 and back to 60 maybe. And that's not as noticeable. So it's a it's a problem across the entire spectrum of hardware. You're going to see it on the high end, the low end, and it's 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 solvable by not doing the game to your vision. And then it comes into this weird thing where are we building games for console? Are we building it for PC? And I've said this before, I think the first time I talked, there's ways you improve and downgrade games for both of them. There's not like a clear win any which way. If you're making it for a dedicated platform like a console, there's specific advantages you can take advantage of. If you're like making a game for PC, sometimes you have to downgrade things because you're targeting PC. Because there's the low end of hardware out there. Because mm-hmm. there's this... And do you really not want to address that market? You know, the internet cafes in Asia that have 1650s? All the streamers that are going to be playing, you know, there's, 
you're going to want your game to target all of those. And we're starting to get to the point now, though, where it's like the 1060 has been the dominant video card for a little too long. We would like that standard to be moved. Mm-hmm. If it was a 3060, everyone would be pretty happy. Um, yeah, it's funny. I remember a couple of years. Was it already two years ago? It was already almost two years ago. Um, I was at the Carolina Game Summit, and I was talking to a developer who was actually on, who worked at Ubisoft. He actually had his hand in tons of Ghost Recons and Assassin's Creed games. He knew a ton. He's like, honestly, man, what I want for this standard is, can we just require everyone to have a 2060 with 12 gigabytes of RAM or something like that? Like, give me a 2060, give it more than enough VRAM, and if every game was built to that, we could probably make any game right now. You just have lower resolution or not. Yeah. And that's, you can choose lower resolution target. You can reduce your textures quite a bit. But the recent pushes in hardware and moving the PS5 and the Series X as the standard and UE5 engine with Nanite specifically, the level of geometry at hand that we're starting to see in games and the amount of textures required to put on those things is getting to be, we're, I mean, we're going to get some pretty amazing bounds in terms of graphics, but it's going to be much more likely to it's going to be much harder to guarantee perfectly streamlined experiences all the way through no matter what Mm -hmm. let me ask this question here so samantha vimes writes in and says hey brian and broken silicon 193 nx gamer talked extensively about how changing specs on consoles during a refresh he indicated that even if you fully enable a chip to unify the ram use better ram and it was relatively easy on a hardware level that the added difficulty of developing console games for another SKU was perhaps too expensive to be worthwhile. Can you offer more insight on what some pain points for those issues would be? What are areas that become difficult or require additional attention? Does this perspective change? If a PC port is being planned, and the dev team already knows they're planning for an array of different hardware systems, not just one PlayStation and one Xbox? Yeah, so there's a lot of things. First of all, it's just another QA skew to search for so it means that when you're having people play the game you need to now increase the amount of people that you have playing the game testing it on multiple hardware uh, configurations on consoles part of the things is specific effects are tied to resolution you get Mm -hmm. um you know your volumetric stuff you when you're doing ray tracing you'd be reflections even when you're doing uh screen space stuff it's reflections ambient occlusion a lot of these things are operating at like half res or quarter res or or if it's like you're having a stylized game and you're doing like outlines on something or you're doing um whatever some some depth pass on it and then you're washing out the background sometimes those things scale with resolution so you end up with a new skew that performs either better or worse then you have effects that are suddenly half as intense or twice as intense. And then with QA testers, they might not be artists, so they might not be seeing some of these distant differences. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's a lot of little things to account for that can be pretty, um, pretty difficult to fully comprehend. And there is, obviously, there's risk with bringing in lots of SKUs. Devs are somewhat sensitive to, well, especially the smaller scope ones, but even the bigger scope ones, because you know, art directors and big art teams might have the vision, but they're not playing on every SKU most of the time. Mm-hmm. They're going to be playing and they're going to be building the assets a specific way. And then when they ship a game out there and then they see people posting screenshots that look weird in a specific way, like, well, I didn't make that that way. Why does it look that way? Oh, this happened. Oh, we optimized it. So maybe someone on the dev team, you might have had it looking like that way in the game 70% of the time all the way through, but you know, frame rate dropped 
40%. There's taking too much GPU time. Some dev makes a fix that fixes something way in another place in the game, and it looks fine everywhere except for this one area. There's these things that come into effect. And when you increase the amount of SKUs, you also increase the amount of times that devs might make decisions like that that hurt this whole game, and then you don't check every corner again. Yeah. Well, I mean, and this is already becoming, I believe, like a more pronounced issue with Xbox because it seems pretty obvious that like the way devs are going about things is they're targeting the PS5 specifically, making sure that all works well, is balanced well, whatever. And then they're they go, all right, how can we fit this into 1080p 30 on the PS4, pretty much? Or it goes the other way. They do 1080p 30 first, then make it work on the PS5. Um, and then there's the in-between. They take the PS4 Pro, but fundamentally, it's honestly very similar to the PS4. So I do think that one was pretty well designed of like, literally, guys, all you got to do is up the resolution and maybe change two things for the extra RAM we gave it. Yeah. But when you look at Xbox games, there's a lot of things going on now where like, the ser- like because they have the <laughs> they have the Series S, uh, the Series X, the One X, the Xbox One, but technically the Xbox One is also the original Xbox One, and then the slim Xbox One that CPU is like ten percent better. And so yeah. what what I find is the Series X version will say, well, we have a little extra bandwidth, a little more teraflops. We're going to turn up the resolution so that those fans are happy. And then what you'll get is like a 1600p ps5 game that's locked at 60 a series x game that's like 1800p but drops down to 45 sometimes Mm. and then they'll say well i don't know that's you know whatever sometimes it might be the ssd though and then they go to the series s and that actually gets a more stable frame rate than the series x but its resolution is bad and then they go to the one x and either it has a 4k 30 with no 60 fps option usually or for some reason it's the same resolution as the ps4 pro which hey i mean it's usually a locked 60 if it is but there's a lot of performance left on the table and then they'll have the base ps4 that's usually fine at 1080p 30 because of the install base they have to make it work well and then you'll get the xbox one and that will be like a dynamic res that drops down to 480p sometimes (laughs) and if you have the original xbox one not the slim too bad it also runs at like 35 frames a second because frankly they just didn't optimize it so and this is the thing where like with playstation there's a little here and there like if the ps but it seems to be optimized but on xbox it's either the resolution's too high or not there's hitching and from what i've heard they really might do a upgraded xbox uh series x this year because of how easy it would be and i'm just wondering like where you would weigh in on the argument of if playstation if xbox should bother because my you know i think there's like three you know places like and i was maybe in this camp a couple years ago of like why not make an rdna4 console at the end of this year or something you know or something crazy like Who cares? But now we're in a recession. I don't know if there's really a market for a $700 console. So where I'm sitting now is, well, couldn't you just take, they're already using six nanometer for the PS5 that they manufacture at this point. Like, why can't you just give it like literally 50% faster GDDR6 and, you know, maybe enable all the compute units and clock it faster. And that'll just be a third gear mode. If they want to check the box and make sure the game runs with that, 30% 30% boost they can most games are dynamic res and yeah. you know why not give the option for gamers to get like a pro version that lets you do that 
Um, and the same on Xbox, especially where if they at least just gave it 20 gigs of RAM, they could stop using split memory and then that would probably give it a massive boost. Mm. Um, you know, why not do that? It costs almost nothing for these companies to do it. But on the other hand, NX gamers like, you know, I know you could give them 50% faster RAM. I know they might not even make 14 gigabit per second memory chips anymore with some companies. But that also means you could give them faster RAM, clock at lower, lower power consumption, use a smaller heat sink, and lower the cost of the console. So I'm wondering what you think. Like, do you think they're they should bother going for the seven hundred dollar console anymore? Do you think they should bother going for the five hundred and fifty dollar console that just makes all your games a little smoother? Or do you think everything should continue to go into, oh, we got a node shrink. That means we're just lowering power consumption and not bothering with anything else. I I mean They've done last gen. They did both, right? They did the slim and the the big well, and they console. will always do both to a certain extent, right? And yeah, my th- my plan, if I were you know the grand poobah at Sony or something, would be well, you know, fully enable it and then clock it faster, and those are the best yields. And then eighty percent of the yields just get disabled and become normal PlayStation fives, anyways. But you know, yeah. there would always be both. But do you think it should all go into slim and not bothering with the marketing push and stuff of this, or do you think? Why not give them that 30% boost and maybe a bigger SSD if that's what people want? This piece of content is brought to you by Wondershare Recoverit. Wondershare Recoverit is a professional data recovery tool with 35 patents that can completely recover deleted and lost files, videos, and photos from any disaster. It's an all-scenario data recovery tool that allows you to recover data from a variety of data loss scenarios, such as accidental deletion, uh, formatting, device corruption, virus attack, or any other unknown error code. It is very easy to use and supports one-click recovery of videos and picture files, and the repair of unplayable videos as well get the link below and try wondershare recover it for free clicking on this link below supports moore's law is dead and it helps you try a great data recovery tool for free as well support the channel and support your ability to recover your precious data with wondershare recover it today i personally as a gamer i like the big consoles yeah. It's, it's fun to have like a bigger piece of hardware to play around with and then do the boost modes and whatnot, see when games have special versions in that. As a dev, I would prefer it doesn't happen. Uh, mm-hmm. Like as someone who works on games, just because uh, it makes it that your attention might not focus as much on the base PS5. And then you'll have situations where, you know, people will say, oh, if you really want to see it, you got to see it on the whatever the ps5 pro and xbox has like a clear path to it to some extent because mm-hmm. their consoles like when we shipped star renegades on series x and uh, sorry on the xbox um their api was by far the easiest in terms of get it working and everything working right fast mm-hmm. but then it was the getting everything and i think a lot of xbox devs are having that exact situation there they're finding a really easy time getting the hardware up and running. The API abstracts a lot of it from you, and then you 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 easily kind of ship across all of those with making moderate um, adjustments to each. Almost platform. just tweaking settings like it's on PC. Yeah, yeah, but you have a much harder time getting everything out of Xbox, and it's kind of a shame because they have a really interesting hardware set this time. But I feel like we haven't really seen what the Series X can do either. So. Um, 
Whereas when you do with PlayStation, because you have to re kind of redo all of your shaders because it has its own API, its own workflow, even just getting the same materials to look right, you kind of have to rebuild your materials and that you're kind of paying attention to it already. Right. And then it changes the nature of how you approach it. Whereas it's so streamlined between PC and Xbox that it's, and I like, I'm speaking, I don't do any of the coding or anything from that. I just, sure. from games that we ported before and I've seen other devs working on, the Xbox ports oftentimes were the easiest, but they don't seem to push the hardware as crazy either. So it's, it's interesting. It'd be easy to release it because the API does so much abstraction on that. On PlayStation, I think it would right. do a lot more. And that's an argument NX Gamer made too, is like, Yes, they could add a third gear mode, like the 40 compute unit, 2.5 gigahertz mode or whatever you want it to be called. But that still requires work. Whereas with Xbox, it's like they can kind of just check a box. Yeah, I mean, it's harder than just checking a box, but it's easier than what you probably have to do on the PlayStation side. But it's, you know, I, I definitely, I think they should probably skip it, especially just financial climate at this point in time. But Mm -hmm. it's... And because I know they've designed it like 100%, a couple of my best sources, including one of the people like, um, well, he's actually moved around, but you know, he, he was involved in AMD design teams and, and he's like, man, they've designed the APUs. Like <laughs> they're there. They have the, the PS five pro and, um, uh, I guess, shall we call it Xbox elite, yeah. uh, you know, APUs they're designed. This was a couple of years ago, or at least the general concept was, of course, they might tweak a few things here and there, but yeah. And I just kind of, to me, sounds like they're not moving forward with it anymore. At least I'm not getting a good feeling that they will. We'll see. But Yeah, the other thing is that, to be honest, if this last year is any indication of it, the push for graphics that we're seeing associated with this gen of consoles is starting to break games in general. Mm-hmm. And if do we need to push that? Because if we release... I don't think we have to worry about the games that already exist, right? That release on Siri on PS5. Let's just take PlayStation as the example. And we make a game and you're currently working on a game on PS5. And then a pro comes out and then you just whatever, double resolution, increase the LODs on those effects. What I'm worried about is the game that's barely running at 1440p on the PS5 Pro. Mm-hmm. And then they have to try to make it work on the base PS5. And then we have a 720p native PS5 game, right? That we push. Well, that's going to happen so to the Series S, though. Don't you agree? Like, that, that's oh, it's already happen. happening. It's they happening. Have 10 to gigs game. of RAM. They're, it's going to be a 640p console soon. Like, it has to be. Yeah, it's funny. They they said a 1440p console initially, which is, you know, and that I've I've always hated that this GPU is for this resolution. This is for that. Like that argument's never gone for me because it's just what is the game? What was the yeah. visual intent of the game? Because any game can, you can make a game that turns any hardware into a well, I think in this 30. It's mostly the Ram too, in this example, yeah. isn't it? And 10 gigabytes, I would say is enough Ram to make almost any modern game, but it's like, yeah, but the textures are going to be real small now. Well, yeah. You're, and once again, the level of geometry, if you want variety on those textures and there's cheats mm-hmm. you can do, like you'll do layers of textures that are like, being generated on top of the layers of base texture to add visual variety or appearing specifically in crevices using masks or whatever angles of slopes and other things. There's there's a lot of shader and interesting work you can add, but still layers of textures upon layers of textures and how 
how high resolution you want those to be. How many additional layers do they have? Is there parallax occlusion maps in there? Are there specular? Like what, what's all the materials you're plugging into these textures? Because it's rarely just one image. Everything comes with a cascade of more textures for textures. Yeah. And you know, another thing I keep coming to is like, you know, if there was endless money, which there, it felt like there was in the market, but of course it's never really endless. The party seems to have stopped now. These pro consoles sound fun to me, but I keep, you know, I even remember saying this uh, before I did that leak that they had designed the next gen consoles saying, I don't think they should do it though, because like, I don't want a PS6 in 2027. I yeah. want it in 2025 and there to be no pro. We don't need a pro. Give me a new generation or 2026. Whenever you think, you know, you've timed it right, that you have a fundamental increase in what you can do. To me, that seems like a better way to go about it. And honestly, I think as luck might have it, 2025 might be the time to do it. That is when we will probably be on like RDNA 4. Yeah, yeah 5 I mean, will be on the horizon. Yeah, four or five, so that maybe they could take some pieces from that like they do at the time. You know, at that point, CPUs will be cemented as whatever. And by then, we'll probably have the IO stuff on PC worked out so they can keep up and probably know what the next thing to do is and they can implement that as well. So I don't know, like, what the... Because, like, what do you even do with a pro? Do you make the IO better? Probably not. Okay, well, then, is it going to start running into the lurching issues PC does if you didn't beef up the IO to perfectly match it? Like... I'd the like, I.O. isn't really the through, like, uh, the I.O. memory systems. I think that in the consoles, it's actually the cache structure of the CPUs that's the biggest holdback because mm-hmm. the consoles are more using... It's it's interesting because you and I are messaging about this, but it feels like high-end PCs run, like, 20 to 40% better than a PS5 in single-player games right now. Mm-hmm. but like four to six X times better in multiplayer games. And we're in this like weird territory where PS5 has a really hard time even sustaining 120 hertz because the CPU is kind of bottlenecked mm-hmm. between, seems like 80 and 120 hertz no matter the game load. It's really hard to sustain something above that. Just be, And I think that the, if I was to guess, it's this is just not me researching or anything. It's just the the more laptop nature cast structures that they built into the APUs in the Series X and the PS5 is what's mm-hmm. holding it back from. So the PlayStation, the consoles are bottlenecked on the CPU when running at high refresh games. And then PCs are almost the opposite. They run those like nothing. But when it comes to the single play experiences, they're getting bottlenecked on their memory systems and their storage systems. So mm-hmm. we have this weird thing where... Uh, consoles are overperforming in single-player games and underperforming in multiplayer games, and PCs are overperforming multiplayer games and underperforming in single-player games, and then gamers aren't getting perfect experiences either way. They have to make decisions. But, I mean, it's kind of... They're all good decisions. It's not like it's bad on anything. It's just trying to figure out the best way to approach all of this. Well, so Beefish writes in, and he says, I have the reverse question on console ports, but it's someone related I brought up in the past that we haven't seen an NHL game on PC for nearly a decade. Mm. Do you foresee a scenario in the future will it be possible to develop for PC, PlayStation, Xbox literally simultaneously with the majority of resources being shared so it was efficient to release every game on every platform or it'd be silly if you didn't? What is keeping this from being the case right now? And they they share most resources or at least 
Like, I think people forget like half of the work is the concepting of the game, writing the game, especially something like, you know, The Last of Us or something. It's like, well, acting and mocap would cost millions probably. <laughs> like that applies to any platform they put it on. Now that's on PC. Yeah. Um, but it's like this- I'm kind of, how much is shared between like PC, PlayStation and Xbox now? Would you say it? or probably the right way to phrase the question, you make a game for Xbox, does it take 50% more work to also put it on PlayStation, 20% more, and then on PC, is that 50%, 20% more? And do you see a it's, future where that becomes 5%? It's so hard, because it's really, what it, problems yeah. did you run into? If if everything goes smooth. You you built the assets the same regardless, from the art end. You're you're drawing and modeling your, your concept art still done in Photoshop. You're still modeling and whatever Blenda, Maya, Studio Max, whatever you are, you're building all your textures and substance painter and designer. All of that stuff is standardized across the board. And then the engines, like a lot of this is dependent. What engine are you working in? Are you, <laughs> and is that abstracting how you access the consoles? And even if it is, when are you, when you run into problems, because that's what happens. Like Unreal and Unity do their best to make sure that you don't have to look as specified as possible as much as they can. But as soon as you run into a problem, now you're digging. So what happens when you have all of a sudden your water effects look crazy on PlayStation? Now you're digging through tons of code and then you're trying to find the exact nature. And then now you're looking into the shader workflow, PlayStation specifically. And like those things happen when you're, come across problems and you're developing for consoles. Um, once again, I'm, I'm bigger on the art front. I talk to people that do all this kind of stuff. So I apologize mm-hmm. if I speak out of term on anything. But it's, it's going to increase time no matter what. And then the size of the developer also comes into question. But then when you have the size of the developer, then you also have the quality of the team that comes into question. And then you get people getting upset because a second-rate team or a spin-off studio was given right. to a, a game. And it, yeah, when games are a certain budget, that's always possible. But then you have different eyes on everything. And when you have different eyes, the intent isn't always shared all the way across. So it can be hard. And depending on the type of game, if it's a multiplayer game you're doing, then it's completely necessary, right? And, Mm, you know... Especially these days, to have a big player base that, you know, you want to hop on, your friend can, no matter what they're using. I'm kind of a split mind myself on this, because as a dev, it would be amazing if you could just ship your game and it wouldn't be any problems. As Mm -hmm. an enthusiast of hardware and someone who loves when games as art push hardware to the absolute limits... I think you lose something special in that territory. Mm-hmm. And it, it may be that there's less special to dig as the hardware has become more similar across the board. But I, I do kind of fear that we're losing a bit of that. And I, I don't like losing that, even though it makes sense in a lot of... Well, you know, I've thought about that too. Like if I was a game developer, I'm like, really what I would want is just a ton of money, one piece of hardware to make my vision. So I only have to worry about the gameplay, (laughs) you know, like, or at least more, more so only have to worry about the gameplay than if you're developing for a hundred different things and trying to make it work and stuff like that. It's nice if you're Insomniac and you make a game and you, you build your own engine tech, you push it to the limits, you release a game that's critically reviewed and then like acclaimed and then you pass it to Nixus. And then mm-hmm. I'm sure that that's still not zero work for Insomniac. They're talking to Nixus. They're explaining aspects of the engine. They're, they're passing 
all of their notations on code or documentations where they get to specific things. They're, like, there's still a lot of communication, time lost in communication, even making sure that it's targeting PC in that, that state. But it, you know, in the context that the question came from the perspective of NHL, now we're talking what, Frostbite running on EA's engines. I don't know how easily it targets multi-platform. Sometimes you have devs that have like an affinity for uh, doing a lot of manual timing for things, which doesn't scale to high frame rates. And if they're mm-hmm. on engine tech from 10 years ago, then you end up with weird situations where um, something that worked really well and let them ship on consoles super easy doesn't scale very well in the PC environment. So they have to completely change their approach to it. But it's until definitely... they decide it's just not worth the effort or something. For this and gen, like, when we and their base, their player base may be 90% on console, they decide to. But when they pivot engines, they'll definitely do it. It's mm-hmm. it's going to be a like it has to be a forethought engine approach perspective. Hey, we're gonna look at this in the future. Let's get this stuff into the engine for the next iteration so it's less of a problem, so it's more streamlined. Hey, you know that cool thing that we did that was manually timed? Get rid of it and build it in a different way so that it mm-hmm. doesn't do that anymore. Well, speaking of engines, Joe writes in and says, Hi, Brian and Tom. We have seen only a few games, in my opinion, implement ray tracing effectively and maintain 60 frames per second with reasonable hardware. Mainly, I think that's Metro Exodus Enhanced Edition. Mm-hmm. I would agree that's one of the only ray trace games I've played where I was like, oh, it works. Uh, Fortnite, Ratchet & Clank Rift Apart, and the Spider-Man games. The studios that made these games with decent ray tracing also created the game engine they're using. These mm-hmm. games prove that the consoles are more capable of ray tracing than initially thought, and these games run better on PC as well. When will we start seeing more games and engines capable of delivering ray tracing and 60 FPS on console that then run well on PC? Um, because I do think this is an interesting point. Like, you know, Hogwarts just came out and it has ray tracing. And yeah, sure, if you turn on ray tracing, it makes uh, RDNA 3 look bad, but it also runs at like 20 frames per second on the NVIDIA PC. So maybe just don't use it. Um, but then you have Metro Exodus, where I, I'm pretty outspoken. Like, you know, the original Metro Exodus, I had freezing issues, bugs. I have no issues in the Enhanced Edition. And even on RDNA 2, whatever, I'll set ray tracing to medium instead of ultra. And the game runs well. I even got it running. It was the 8 gigabyte version of a 6500 XT, but I got that running 1080p medium at like 100 hertz with a, you know, 16 compute unit card in a ray traced game. Like, it's really rare for me to find games that run that well with ray tracing, though. Like, is this going to change? Are Do they require building the engine around it themselves? Like, probably for it to work. I can answer this in a kind of funny way, as like one of my favorite games ever just came out again a few weeks ago in Metroid Prime Remastered. And if you look at that game, it's surprisingly one of the best-looking Switch games. And the reason is it's running on a GameCube engine, and they rebuilt the, hmm. the renderer. So this is what happens when you streamline a game engine to be exactly what a game needs. And almost all of the rest of the time, game engines have so much extra baggage for other things that other people could make a game to be. So even if you don't use any of those features, any of those aspects in your game, the code structure, the, you know, the setup for it is all still there, slowing down at least a little bit of what the potential is for the hardware. So when you have custom engines that are doing what's necessary for the game, you have potential in a lot of cases to have a bunch extra for the renderer. And then you have, if you have lots of free time, 
in terms of uh, render time before you have your next frame, then when you're building a BVH structures, you're not stretching stressing your systems as much. You're not, you know, there's there's not so much. Um, and I mean, you talked about this too with the PS4 beginning of the generation on the first talk with Batman Arkham Knight, where instead of mm. switching to Unreal 4, they used Unreal 3, and then they just built all sorts of custom tool sets. They kept the base engine layer from the last gen, and then they used it, and same with Bioshock. They had the previous gen, and then they built all their own water systems on stuff on top of it. When you keep your engine simplified, you have the opportunity to use whatever the performance over is overhead is for whatever you want. And when you make your own engine like that, you have the opportunity to to create time for your BVA structure by not having so mm. much other stuff in the engine. Like Unreal has to be ready to to ship out a shooter, uh, a, a survival game, a racing game, a whatever, right? And all of the infrastructure is in there to build any of those things. And it's great at that, but it's getting harder for you know, it's getting harder for studios, especially to be able to make render tech that is as good as that. So there's experts in the industry and you see it with the Plague Tale run their own engine. And, you know, obviously when you're talking Metro Exodus, they used it for global illumination because you either, <laughs> and they, they got to do away with their regular render. I know they used their typical render in the other version of the game, but I'm kind of cur- even curious how cutting out legacy support might've helped. Mm-hmm make it run even better with ray tracing that's true like with metro exodus is the reason there's less bugs because they could throw out the support for so many older architectures and it just had to work on like well really just i think it just had to work on turing (laughs) then it had to work on ampere and intel and rdna2 and that makes it it probably eliminates a lot of a lot of the stuff they still had to keep running right yeah when they threw out their their um their raster pipeline Mm -hmm. it's just it's all they use the ray tracing for global illumination, which is awesome because you get, you know, beautiful, perfect ambient occlusion. You get indirect lighting. Because indirect lighting is so hard, especially likely to light leakage and all of the problems that can happen when trying to deal with modern lighting solutions. You know, ray tracing is great if it was more performant. Like people love using it, or you could use it for novelty stuff like Spider Man, where I mean, reflections are cool and they add depth to the world for sure. But it's it's much flashier, right? Like, there's mm-hmm. a big difference between that and global. It has an outside noticeability in a game like that than it might in another game. Yeah, totally. I mean, it helps that it's like like a game that's mostly things. in a forest. Do you even need ray tracing? There's no, nothing exactly. that reflects. Well, you need it for global illumination. When you have sure. lots of trees overhead, then it creates beautiful indirect light. So it's because indirect light is very hard to make look good. In mm-hmm. You can you can bake. You can do lots of other things. And modern engines with Lumen it has ways to do that. But it's it's still there's a beauty to simple engines built for a game. And some of these devs are coming off of the engine per game or version of engine per game philosophy mm. that yeah. existed in the PS2, GameCube, Xbox era, where basically you were going to make a game, you were making an engine, and you might be able to pull some tools from whatever FMOD or bink video codec you grab like weird tool sets and drag them in but oftentimes you're doing an engine per game and now you know most people are either on unreal or uh if you're at a big studio you're using frostbite or whatever their engine is or re engine or decima or decima. you know whatever but yeah so i guess it sounds like yeah uh, you're saying like a lot of these devs that are purpose building their engines with ray tracing in mind 
That is the added benefit that from the start, it had to be efficient. They're not tacking it on. But also, because it's using ray tracing, they're probably throwing out a bunch of legacy stuff that was getting in the way. So it's probably both. And so, yeah, do you think... um do you think we're going to see a leap in like stability and efficiency, a decent one, once we finally have games that, well, rasterization is the afterthought, not ray tracing or something, or it's like some more of a balanced approach where they're building for the beginning, but maybe they're just saying, hey, look, it doesn't need ray tracing to run, but if you run it in the other mode, we just turn off half of the special effects. Yeah, I mean, Lumen's already kind of there in Unreal. It's, hey, you can... You can hardware accelerate this. It exists in software if you don't. And we're sorry if you get 20 frames per second or less if your GPU isn't good enough. But it's it's going to be the visual standard. And like people notice lighting changes quite a bit in games. So mm-hmm. it's one of the it's probably the last <laughs> the last thing that we're gonna do to make games look significantly better. And then once we do, like look what it did to Fortnite, right? Mm-hmm. They took it and they put in Lumen and then all of a sudden light looks much more accurate and then all these people are freaking out about Fortnite looking. And that lighting engine could be really powerful. The problem kind of gets to be when it's the standard, which is probably about four years away from now, when we've we've reduced the low end to the point where it's no longer necessary to accommodate. Everything has the base feature set. We can start using specific things to accelerate it, like mesh shaders across the board and have... Um, free time because part That's of it not is that far away though you know because um meteor lake uh will have an alchemist based version of graphics which not a big fan of alchemist but at least maybe some retooled igpu version has all of the modern features mm. and you know amd has been using rdna2 in their apu since a year a, a year or two ago and we're about to have an RDNA 3 APU, and we are getting to the point where I, th- I like even Mendocino is supposed to replace all low end graphics soon for our APU soon from AMD. So I do think we're getting to a point where in a couple of years, everything out will support the latest tool set, even integrated, and everything from two years prior already did as well. So we're kind of getting there. And, th- th- you know, there's going to have to be a point. Um, one of my best friends, his wife likes playing The Sims. And I think she plays it on like a like a Skylake laptop with integrated graphics. And he's like, I don't know how she plays it. It's like eight frames a second. At some point, the devs need to say, <laughs> hey, you're not playing The Sims at eight frames anymore. You got to have something. Yeah, there's um, I think that we're going to have to start doing what just happened with even the RX 480 with Forspoken and specific things mm-hmm. where you know, hey, it doesn't have this feature set. Or when Far Cry came out and was like, sorry, quad cores, but uh, anything below quad, we need at least a certain number of cores or you're not running the game. Like something has to move the standard up on the low end to some extent for devs to feel comfortable. And it's not going to be the smaller studios that feel comfortable to do it until some big sure. ones have done it. Because, you know, a gamers, we, we appreciate gamers and we appreciate obviously their love and, um, excitement for games so enabling having paths to enable them as much as possible is great but we also are excited to move forward with feature sets and everything as well so all right i think this kind of leads into this samantha vimes writes in and says hey tom and brian and broken silicon 109 god we're almost to 200 now brian mentioned that some amd optimizations on consoles are stripped out during a console's port 
If next-gen consoles have 3D cache, do you think optimization for this architectural feature would similarly be stripped out? Do you think these implementation habits will change as AMD continues to claw back market share? If the 3D V cache optimizations are kept, how might this impact Intel and NVIDIA's future gaming performance? I remember that. I, I highly recommend that, by the way, to everybody listening. If you haven't listened to episode 109, you... And then I talked on a scammer about this later too, like stripping out features that could be there, but it makes the porting easier it was a fascinating discussion. But yeah, we talk about engines specifically in APIs because the API feature set on DirectX 9, 10, and 11 didn't have features that existed on um, consoles. And then 12 had them, but NVIDIA cards didn't have them. Specific devs that I've talked to have mentioned that they made. Um, they added asynchronous compute for particles or things like that, or they had, um, with PS4 Pro, they had already done half floats. So they had already yeah, marked P16. a lot of their, they, yeah, they've marked a lot of their code for FP16 for double performance on that specific subset. And when they did their PC ports, they cut them out because NVIDIA at the time didn't have the feature set in any of the NVIDIA GPUs. And that was the vast majority of the market share. And then it also meant that they could target QA across the board. And um, so if we're talking about 3D vCache, I don't know the strange ways that you could use 3D vCache. My mind immediately Mm. goes back to, especially in a console, because it's accessible to the GPU and the CPU. And if you were choosing to do it in very specific ways with the GPU, you could do a lot of... There's probably some crazy tricks they could do, like, oh, well, we do this action constantly, so we're going to centralize it here in the cache, and this is going to make everything connected to that fast. You could do, like, a complete, uh, like, uh, render to a specific buffer that's stored separately in cache that does a crazy AI pass that turns everything into an anime aesthetic or something weird. Like, you could do mm-hmm. something crazy like that if you had that hardware to set aside. And I, my mind immediately goes to the... Uh, the 10 meg ED RAM die on the Xbox 360, which sometimes devs use for 4X MSAA. Sometimes they used for mm-hmm. um, doing weird visual effects, or sometimes they used to store an extra buffer for some weird reflections or something. Like they had the opportunity to use that for lots of things. Um, if you were to take the PC approach, it's probably just going to be scheduling and it will be so separate from each other in a GPU versus in a CPU in terms of how it's accessed, that it would be hard to port over some of console things that you could do if you had free reign and were targeting it directly on console. But I, like, once again, just an artist, I'm not entirely sure. It's just weird things coming to mind from what people have done in the past and what theoretically might be possible. But it's, uh, you would end up with situations, especially if it's not in both the CPU and the GPU. And if there might be things where you have to pass it back and forth where you just couldn't utilize it in the same way, mm-hmm. you could use it in the way we're currently using it on the PC, no problem. And you could add that as a supportive layer. But hopefully the Windows scheduler just gets so good that you don't even have to think about it. It's interesting too, because, you know, I think the direction both PlayStation and uh, Xbox went with their consoles is, well, we're going to basically use the mobile variants of these uh, Zen architectures because they're just so much more compact. And, you know, we'll, we'll streamline I.O. and stuff, but fundamentally there's not going to be a, a ton of cash. Well, actually, I believe there was, there's actually kind of a little extra L2 or L1 cache in there somewhere, yeah. I think, per compute unit on those consoles. Um, and that'll just 
kind of taking like a Rembrandt approach of like no infinity cash, but extra L2 or L1. And then, you know, we'll have that amount of bandwidth. Like you, you think in a future console though, if they had like finally some big level of L3 cash, you think they'd do something like 128 or 64 megabytes and then centrally shared between both GPU and CPU, right? You can do a lot of fun things with that. Like, like it'd be silly for them to not centralize it and have them both share it. Am I wrong? Yeah. You because prob- I was a little surprised in like how when Zen 3 was already coming out, they have these two separate clusters for the Zen 2 uh, CCXs on the consoles. And I'm like, that just seems a little inefficient when they already knew what direction this was going. Yeah. Yeah, I'm uh yeah, I'm not sure entirely about that myself. It's uh I I definitely think that you would it would be accessible regardless. There'd be a way to write to it or whatnot if it was all in the same APO, APU, but mm-hmm. it's yeah, I I do see situations. It really depends on how the the platform holders even give you access to it as well, but there's a lot of a lot of situations I could see where if we're talking about PS6 or whatnot, having that cash, I mean, hopefully it's a streamlined enough tech that obviously it drops the clock. So NVIDIA and Intel might not be as interested in using it in specific contexts. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know. I, I wish I could answer that a little bit better, but I can. I see where it'd be fun and I see what could potentially work out. But hopefully... If that scenario happens, uh, the scheduler is better, and at least you get a base performance fix, regardless in some feature parity. But you probably wouldn't get to do everything fun with it that a console could do with it, right? Because it sounds like what you're saying is they're probably not going to strip it out. Like they'll use it for something easily because it's just much it's easier to implement than like FP16 or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jessie here may know how to fetch very well, but she really hasn't learned one of the main things any viewer of Moore's Laws Dead should know by now, and that's that you don't need to overpay for Microsoft keys. This piece of content is brought to you by cdkeyoffer.com. There's just no reason to pay exorbitant monopolistic prices for Microsoft Office or Microsoft operating systems anymore. Not when you have someone like cdkeyoffer.com, who's been a fantastic sponsor of Moore's Laws Dead for many years now. If you're looking for anything from Steam games, Origin games, Uplay games, or PlayStation keys, or reasonably priced Microsoft software, go to cdkeyoffer.com today, click the links in the description, and use the offer codes BROKENSILICON for 25% off Microsoft keys, and DieShrink for 3% off everything else on the website. Don't be like Jesse here, who's chewing on my chair right now. Be smart, don't overpay for online software, and go to cdkeyoffer.com today. Aiden FS and Samantha Vimes write in, I combine their questions, and they both together ask, we have seen an increase in core counts from lowly quad cores to 16 cores and beyond recently. However, top-end CPUs still seem to keep focusing on eight fast cores. Examples include the 13900K with eight big cores, the 7950X3D with just a single eight-core CCD and a ton of V-cache on it. How much effort will game developers need to put into maximizing the use of both of these new heterogeneous compute resources available to them. Furthermore, how might increased cache sizes in X3D fundamentally change how games are developed? We've already been talking about that a little. Does this answer change depending on whether 3D cache comes to next-gen consoles? Mm. Yeah, I, we, we talked about that last part. 
whether it would change in regards to that. Um, so part of the question is why is eight core still a focus? Well, yeah. And like, what does, how much effort does this create for developers to fully leverage both like the I nine, but also then the R nine, they both have eight gaming cores and then extra threads, but the extra threads are very different between the two architectures. Well, yeah. And you have P cores and E cores on Intel and you have, then you have faster clocked. P cores on AMD, yeah. And in theory, you have super high cache cores and super high clock cores on AMD. There's there's so much that you could do with all of that. But I mean, it's it's a little hard to separate systems in game development to target multiple cores. Oftentimes, as far as what I deal with, the engine tech's already doing that as much as humanly possible. And then what you end up having is scenarios where if you're finding a lot of CPU like performance, you're, you're uh, losing a lot of time on your CPU cycles, then you might try to batch a whole bunch of stuff together to set on another thread or, or some system that you're doing to build another thread. It's kind of in a weird territory right now where what you build into the, your game is the danger you face, mm-hmm. at least with UE5. Because you have a base performance cost that's pretty heavy. And then if you're building in a system, like it doesn't matter what it is, it can be like a grail, whatever. Let's say it's a grail grinding system where you have to always be calculating surfaces to know exactly how to attach. Mm -hmm. That can end up being the most costly thing in your game right now. And then trying to figure out how to manage resources for that. Sometimes it would be great to know how many cores you have available so that you can... Right, Because sometimes you end up with situations where you have GPU-based solutions and CPU-based solutions to things, and you're afraid to go one way or another. So like for that instance, you could either whatever run a CPU calculation on the mesh to determine however many distance and then calculate points along it to interact with, or you could maybe write it to a depth buffer in your GPU, and then you now you're using floats and GPU time to make a mask of all of that in the scene and then determine what's grindable in that sense like you have these decisions and when you don't have set hardware sometimes it's hard to determine which path to take are we Mm -hmm. going the path where we can do this and we'll do it on the cpu and then we'll try to push it onto another core but if everyone's only got six cores maybe we should use more gpu time but then what happens when someone with a 1060 is using it and then we've done this thing that costs this gpu time so you end up with weird situations like that so i'm like I know that one of the questions in the document you sent me talked about the 7900X 3D, and me, yep. that makes me think about six cores with Vcash because yeah, I'm I'm much like eight cores is fine for now, but I already like I said this in the the first time I was on Broken Silicon with you, but I'm worried for the cases where games use all of the next gen consoles hardware because they have ASICs that deal with compression decompression. Mm-hmm. For assets and yeah we have direct storage now because it's on the ps5 it's equivalent to essentially having four zen cores doing nothing but compressing decompressing assets and yeah that means no, that i've seen it since the division too like my 3950x uh just zen 2 16 cores when i would load the game just 100 cpu usage like that it would yeah. load really quick but i noticed that and i was like oh well there's my io <laughs> it's just it's, using and it's maxing out 32 threads to load in two seconds and then we're you know i'm curious with direct storage because it's now we're talking about 
game developers building a system that's essentially going to cost roughly four cores to do the amount of asset compression, decompression. And then you have the alternative now on PC coming where you can use GPU cycles, but then devs will have to Mm -hmm. prepare for those GPU cycles to be lost. And then how data intensive your game is could mean you're losing more of the GPU suddenly. Right, because with direct storage, if you're using the GPU, or, you know, I think NVIDIA argues with their version of it, uh, like whatever RTX IO, uh, like that they're using the tensor cores to do it even faster. It's like, well, that's all well and good NVIDIA. You're using your tensor cores to load the game. So if I boot up Harry Potter and it were to use that, we could just get into the game quick. But what if I want to load a hallway in Hogwarts well, I'm running the game, NVIDIA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, am I going to get even worse frame hitches now because I'm just not letting a few cores do it in the background for 10 seconds? Now I'm loading, all right, I'm loading that hallway in one second, but my frame rate fell off a cliff for one second. Whereas before, yeah, yeah. it would have taken 10 seconds, my frame rate would have stayed the same. And even um, frame time usage, too, right? That it's not always using the same amount of the IO storage. So it's harder to spec out the GPU on that front. I don't know. I'd have to see it more in more games and I'd need to see bigger games using it to, yeah. to properly assess what the cycle is. I'm kind of curious. You know, I think the acquisition cycle, both AMD and NVIDIA tried to do with ARM, but, you know, AMD buying Xilinx, I'm very curious the future of hardware in general, especially the relationship from FPGAs to ASICs having accelerators on hardware and we're kind of on the cusp of computers starting to build themselves. In terms of prior to this, we always kind of mapped out what features we're going to put in hardware. We test them out, see if they get adoption, and yeah. then and do Alchemy, that. Alchemy, like guess and check and a simulation. But yeah. we're on the cusp of the inverse happening where we're probably going to see commercial APUs shipping with AI engines and a bit of FPGA in them. And then we're going to see a cycle where the AI engines uh, and the they'll start to seek out what's happening, where lots of code is happening over and over again, where things are dropping performance issues. They're going to start offloading that to FPGAs is my guess. And then when they know what the most common things FPGAs are used for in that scenario, they're going to start hiding them into ASICs. And then we're going to have more and more accelerators being built based on analytics already happening in the chip itself, Mm. and it'll be less guesswork. And we might be provided that we can give it the amount of bandwidth necessary to pull it off and all of the IO around it necessary to pull it off. We could be at a really strange exponential curve in... in Yeah, you can even see like where they're like doing data collection um, on how your CPU is using resources and then compiling that in a server at amd and going oh tech tip you know usually this is actually getting bottlenecked here for most daily day-to-day use we should probably beef up this part here and not this part yeah so and then we're getting to the part now where it's like it it would be the computer being like oh look at that part here not even a person and Mm -hmm. then that determining because you know hard data that just says hey it's already using these whatever these calculation sets let's build an asic around it it's going to be could be making very interesting hardware going forward and in a way that i don't know if um users are going to be able to keep up with but yeah well and in a going back to what we talked about in the beginning like 
again, that might also contribute to people not paying as much attention because I've, I've already started to consider how hard it is going to be probably to compare AMD Strix to like Meteor-like or certainly compared to some Aero-like systems I've heard about where it's like, oh, just talking about how many cores they have doesn't cut it because now there's big little cores. Soon there might be four threads per some of the cores and then there might be this accelerator and not that one. How do I even say which APU is better? Yeah. I'm kind of, I wish that we had better benchmarks. I, oh, yeah. I, games are such finicky benchmarks, especially when you're, you know, talking about weird edge cases. Like, why does RDNA 3 run Call of Duty so well? Mm-hmm. And I feel like we need, like, man, if I worked at 3D Mark or something, I would be structuring my benchmarks completely differently. I would have, you know, hey, here's set geometry. You could do you could do your cool demo video like they do, where it's all assembled. Mm-hmm. But then it should do something with passes, where it's like, hey, here's this, here's alpha, here's some transparency. Now let's fill it with explosions and see what all of this alpha blending does. Oh, here's post processing layer on top of that, and then calculate. And then when you with your GPU, you could see in the profile, it's like, oh, that's really weird. When you had fifty thousand explosions happen, our DNA three outperforms Ada Lovelace. But when you have crazy shader workloads it's the other way around and then gamers can make like they can almost be at least a little bit more able to communicate about the differences between hardware and then also you know if they're like well i play only shooters and explosions are important i don't want to lose frame rates in the most critical time then they can start making hardware decisions based on what hardware actually does better versus another Well, and this is what aids with console optimizations as well i mean half of third-party games guys they, they really are just toggling lower medium settings for half the stuff and if they notice they can just barely get away with medium plus maybe they'll create a medium plus for the playstation instead of high um and you know but because of this though that's why you also see different devs say different things about the performance of the consoles and i think some people will hear me go well this dev says you know the ps5 is a 3070 or better this dev says it's a 3060. This dev says, uh, I don't know, 6700 XT, 3060 Ti. It's because some devs have more explosions and some don't, and some are more efficient with their explosions. And the PlayStation 5 isn't the best at explosions, but it's like really good at geometry. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's all of that stuff. You, you, and it'd be cool if you had a way to communicate it really clearly. But because we don't have proper profiles of hardware, mm hmm. It's and then just the variances in engines, right? Because there's even different, and it could be like things turn off a cliff at a certain point. It could be, you know, two, four, eight times tessellation, they're identical. But when you cross that 32 line, one leaps away, even though there's no visual difference between the two. There's lots of weird things like that that can happen with hardware. And it would be cool to be able to document them. Anyways, that's that's just me dreaming if I was building a benchmark for no reason. Mm-hmm. I'd have no desire to build a benchmark, but that's uh, what how I would approach it. Well, I want to kind of continue down that road more, but before we do, I, I want to finish um, talking about X3D, just to nip it sure. in the butt. So Florida Man writes in and he says, Hi, Brian, when you use your X3D chip, because you told me you have a 7950 yeah. X3D and I told them that, he goes, I imagine there are situations where you want to play a game on one CCD and have a productivity application on the other. But this doesn't seem to occur by default due to core parking. You must manually pick threads or have a multi-threaded application span both CCDs based on what I understand. Does this bother you? Secondly, what would you prefer AMD's X3D CPU threader logic to be since I guess it currently relies on the Xbox game bar? That was a weird surprise when they said that. So, I mean, yeah. 
his question, you know, I'm interested in your answer directly to him, but also just what do you think about Zen 4X3D so far? I need to talk about Zen 4X3D because I watched all the reviews for it and basically every review said, I don't know who this is for. And that whole time I I'm said like, that too. Yeah. I'm like, well, this thing I, was... I said that for the top one. Yeah. Yeah. The 7950X3D. And I'm like, this is for me. It's like, if there was a chip made for me, it's that because I need to operate in both spaces. I need, I need Unreal Open. I need Maya Open, Photoshop, all of those things. Sometimes though, I need to record footage at the highest resolutions for some demo reel for showing to some publisher or some conference. And you need having one piece of hardware that I can do all of that with is amazing versus any kind of, and you know, I'm willing to take the five, 10% productivity on already very good productivity mm-hmm. hardware so that I have access to being able to reduce stuttering and all of uh, the little performance hitches and everything when I'm recording that footage for a sizzle reel for a trailer or for something that we need to show. So having access to be able to run games incredibly well simultaneously with having the resources available to make the assets is like, that's the, the 7950X 3D is like the perfect chip for me personally. Now, in regards to his question, gaming is, I know when I'm using it for the gaming aspect of it. This isn't like, me gaming in whatever my spare time or whatnot, it'll be more like, oh, well, I when it's in production, I just leave the performance mode off. I leave it on like the highest performance so that I know I'm always getting all cores. I don't even worry about that. And then if I know that I'm about to record, then I'll turn that mode because I'm not really, I'm not going to care that much about losing the 5, 10 frames, 5, 10% of my frames per second, 80% of the time, except when it's really critical. And knowing that I have that switch when I need to go in and actually mm-hmm. get the best footage of a game that I can to show off. That's it's really special. I wish that you didn't have to do it. So and um I am yeah, it much seems really clumsy out of the gate, I have to say. It's At least clumsy compared to what gate. it should be. Uh, you know. Yeah, it's clumsy out of the gate, but I don't think that it's it's compared to what some devs have to deal with in regards to hardware, it's not that huge. Right. It's funny, though. You're maybe the wrong person to ask about it, though, because you're like, this is easy and it allows me to do all of these things for work. <laughs> you're, like, that's yeah. not what most people probably... It's sold out on Newegg instantly. It's like the best-selling CPU of the year already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean... I, I, Those are probably mostly gamers, if we're being honest. Yeah, and I see the argument for gamers outright, and I wasn't really looking at it from a gamer perspective. I'm looking at it from a, I need a, I need to have one really good computer I can do everything with, and then... Mm-hmm know that I can trust it for anything and that give me that and I really I needed that and sometimes especially when you're working on early early builds of games it's helpful to have more hardware to power through it mm-hmm. so having the best chips so you can get really good trailer footage is is very nice and I I definitely appreciate the ability to turn off the extra eight cores and like park them and be able to get really good footage. And so the chip is perfectly designed. I know that like if we're talking, it's probably logistics is the reason they didn't ship the 7800 X3D right off because it's the lower margin chip, which means that they would have probably had to do like a small airship of it, right? And then mm. they really want that one to be delivered. Well, maybe by they shipped ship. them. You're right. It came, it's launching. It's launching, I think, almost exactly six weeks later, which is the time it takes to ship something boat. by boat. So 
they probably shipped them at the same time and they're like, hey, this is lower margin. So we're going to ship it by boat, guys. Yeah, that's like, it's a shame. And I, I, I've been seeing everyone reading it from the like, no, it's AMD being greedy and trying to force everyone. And maybe there's a bit of that. I don't know. If there, or but it's, but just it's funny. Shipping. I didn't think of that because I've tried to explain this to people about a dozen times when it comes to motherboards. Like, why are motherboard prices coming down? It's because, guys, the, all the $400 models, I mean, those were all of them over the holiday season were airshipped. Everything that's getting here, we're only 12 weeks into the new year. Sometimes boats take 12 weeks. Motherboard prices are starting to come down a little bit here and there because they're arriving by boat and they yeah. just never were before, you know. So I think that might be one of the reasons that they separated the 7800X from ESKU. I think that's the most favorable excuse you can give AMD for that one. But uh, for in regards to the chip, I never, I was never interested in the 7800X3D. I was always interested in the 7950X3D for me personally, just because it suits my workload. I need the cores for building assets, and then I need to be able to switch over for high performance and for gaming. So for me, it's the well, perfect so chip. I do want to ask this, though. Got up to your head. Do you wish it was just all X3D? Mm, I don't know about that because some of the applications but, I need... Because I understand the, actual... the argument. Well, you say that, though. You didn't care that you were losing 5 to 10% productivity. Yeah. Do you really care if you lose another 5%, man, to never have to worry about any of it? Yeah, I probably, if they had both options, I probably would take one with all 3D vCache. Um, even more, what would that be? Would that be like a hundred and, how many megs of 3D vCache would that be? Oh, I, isn't it like 192 or something? I want to say it is, but I don't know off the top of my head. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. Don't want to double down because the comments will <laughs> make sure I know I got it wrong. Yeah, I probably um, definitely would have um, picked up an all 3D Vcash chip if it existed. When I was thinking about this too, you know, I leaked that AMD had samples hitting about 5.9 gigahertz and then Angstronomics leaked 5.85 gigahertz at least. I know their samples that hit at least 5.8, 5.9. Standard reason some could hit 6 gigahertz. I, I just think to myself, wouldn't it, to combat the 13900K and KS, which KS is basically just a K, wouldn't it have been better if AMD launched a 7950X3D with uh, all Vcash for 750? Just add 50 bucks if you want to, AMD. And then for $700, they had a 7950XT because I'm sure they can go from 5.7 to 5.9. I'm 100% sure on some samples. And then couldn't you make the argument? Because this is these, this kind of plays into my overall thought. Like if you want productivity, the 7950X, you said it yourself. You don't care if you lose 10% or something gaming yeah. performance. If you, I, I tell people, well, I don't get it. If you want multi-threading, then get the 7950X. Like it sucks at gaming. And if no, they- if they brought out something with 5% better single threading performance just through clock speeds, just give people the choice. 700, you know, $600, yeah. 7950X, $700, 7950 XT, 750, 7950X3D. Because I, I do feel like it's still, you're either someone who's going to say, I don't care if I lose 5% gaming performance, or you're someone who's going to say, you know, I don't, oh, wait, I, I, I mostly want more multi threading or something. And, or you want the gaming at all times. Like you're one or the other. I find it very hard to believe you're someone who's going to trade 5% of both to be 5% better at both. You'd rather have 10% of one of them. Even having those like three SKUs available as a game developer would be pretty huge because I know, um, like for me, because I, as an art director, I have to 
pull videos together and do stuff like that and make sure that I'm getting good footage and coordinating with heavy 3D tool sets and stuff a lot. But with um, like some of the devs that I work with, 80% of it's compiling. So mm-hmm. they'd take they'd take a higher clocked um, no vcache model a lot of the time over anything else because they lose so much time compiling and they're not required at any point in time to catch video, get good gameplay footage or anything like that. So different different jobs within that would require those different SKUs. And I can see the breadth of SKUs having very like, hey, this is basically the same chip, but this is the subtle differences in its marketability and just communicate that directly to the consumers and then mm-hmm. sift through it the way you want, right? That at my studio, I know we'd find use for all three chips. Right. And I don't know. I just can't help but think that's the way they should have gone about it. But I do wonder if, although the Xbox Game Bar thing is weird and it makes, gives me pause on if this is what's going on, but I know that Phoenix 2 has two Zen 4 cores and four Zen 4C cores. And so I'm like, and I know that Zen 5 is going to play around with all different types of core count combinations, probably cache combinations too. And I go, is this AMD just knowing they've got to get good at scheduling this stuff in the future anyways? And so they're like, Let's do this now. We can also save a bit of money. Or do you think it may have been a mistake that, because again, I'm like, man, if you just had a six gigahertz model and then an X3D model, I just let people choose which one they want because I'm guessing it's one or the other. I think that with the weird hardware feature that I was communicating just a bit ago, the FPGA to ASIC with AI accelerating future, we're going to end up with a lot more scheduling necessary than what was previously done. And we're going to probably deal with it in different ways. It's it's not going to be as manually done, the scheduling. So I do think that we're pointed towards a future where there is um, more need for scheduling different types of hardware outright, whether it's FPGA, accelerator, uh, just asynchronously powerful hardware, and gen queuing up workloads and being able in a very short cycle within the workload itself determine how to distribute it. Mm-hmm. Well, so I have to end this X3D discussion on this though. The 7900X3D is just stupid, right? I don't I don't get the point no. of this thing. If it was an 8 plus 4, which I'm Ah, I said that to Dan too. I could see if they were like just throwing on their worst four core yields for like $500 and the 7900X was 450. But for 600 for this? What? If you were still getting eight cores on the Vcash part of Mm -hmm. the chip, then I would still see a purpose for it as a cheaper. Agreed. uh, uh, But I, I am very skeptical on the longevity of any six core parts in the future that's especially one that makes you turn off some of them sometimes (laughs) yeah so that's my like having six cores with vcash and like only those six cores accessible for games the 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 core parking i don't know if that it might be fine for now but that's going to be one of the shortest lived windows of pc gaming so it's like I, i don't feel good about buying hardware that's really only good for a year or two versus mm-hmm. that um, meets its peak performance for only a year or two i can i i guarantee when we see some of these heavy ue5 titles that are going to ship in one or two years we're going to see six cores crying mm-hmm. very soon 
that's and my, by uh, and let's be fair by six cores crying maybe they're running at 40 to 60 frames you know but yeah. we're pretty used to like 180 now or something so <laughs> that's the funny thing to think about too is like yeah like when people complain about like console ports and they're like well this is running harry potter you know, at this resolution, why can't this? It's like, we are running it at double the resolution the console is, dude. And yeah. they're trying to run it at 60. You're trying to run it at 180. So, yeah, yeah you no. have six times the hardware. It's struggling what? to get to six times the performance. Do you, have, <laughs> do you have six times the hardware everywhere in your system is yeah. the other thing, right? Is is every aspect of your hardware six times more powerful? <laughs> Probably not. Yeah. Well, and I think, I just yeah I, I I I think you said you were surprised by these takes, but can you at least see my point of like I think if you're a gamer you want the seventy eight hundred X three D. Oh yeah. And by the way, I want to point this out. Like I think that's going to be such a seller because apparent like Tech Power Up estimates that's going to use like fifty watts while gaming or something. It's going to be the gaming king the small form factor king and that's never happened before usually you need a nuclear reactor to have the best gaming performance now yeah. it's actually the most efficient chip that means you can drop it into any system any form factor put on a low profile knock to a cooler who cares it'll cool it just fine like that type of thing that thing's have- gonna it's gonna be very in demand i think and and then for everyone else i'd say yeah but if you want multi-threading who cares if it's 20 percent worse yeah. 7950X, it's 500 bucks now or something at Micro Center. When you think about small form factor especially, I have an Intel 12th gen laptop and I have a AMD uh, uh, resin, or I think the 5th gen, mm-hmm. sorry. So the, the 5000 5, laptop and it runs half as hot as the Intel laptop at almost yeah. all times. My legs burn from the my Razer Intel one and I'm just thinking like Intel's Current solution, very, very powerful. Really, it's magnificent to see it running, but it's also it's crazy how much heat and how much power it's dissipating. And it's, you know, we're at the weirdest cusp in PC hardware, and I love it. I love powerful hardware, but mm. it's also so inelegant. There's this. Disparate... But that's why the seventy eight hundred X three D is so interesting. Is it actually well, even the seventy nine fifty X seventy nine fifty X three D? Like for sure, right now that is the best small form factor gaming cpu until the 7800 xrd launches it's kind of interesting even just adding that asymmetry for power efficiency it's like yeah you lose like five to ten percent in the of of theoretical performance but you're getting like 30 40 percent efficiency it's crazy how much efficiency you're getting on that and for someone who works on the computer all day it's nice to have something not be eating up the power bill as much and using that much heat it's well, that's what tipped me towards actually kind of liking the 4090 a lot is, well, it's not at 100%. It actually uses less energy than my 3070 did. And so I'm like, oh, I'll take it then. That's fine. I just wish the coolers weren't too big. <laughs> this might be blasphemy to some gamers, but I I am personally a fan of like capping off the last 20% of your frames to save that 50% of efficiency. Just... Do you really, especially the 4090, do you need like 400 frames per second? If you put it at 280, you're running the game pretty well and your power is so much lower. Well, that's the funny thing is I plan to cap my 4090 at like 300 watts, but I found that I could, with the memory overclocked and like, you know, some tweaks and undervolting, I could actually cap it at 350 watts and it outperformed stock by 5 to 10%. Yeah. 
And most of the time it's using 250. So who cares? <laughs> like there's almost no game that pushes it. It'll spike to like 350 watts in Battlefield for five seconds. It goes right down to 200. Yeah. And, I, and so that's why it's an architecture where you don't even really need to cap it that much. Just cap it to where it doesn't go insane because I, yeah, if it was going at 500 watts, which I, I tried it at 550 watts in here and it got hot. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I tried to max it out. But, yeah. um, well, well, all right. Well, perfect. So we're getting on to graphics cards. I, I want to transition into this then right now. Jessie here loves bones, but it wouldn't be healthy for her to constantly eat them as much as she would love that. The same is usually true for reasonably priced instant meals. It can feel like you're stuck whenever you're looking for something that's quick to cook, tasty, healthy, and cheap all at the same time. Well, unless you just choose Vite Ramen, this piece of content is sponsored by Vite Ramen. Vite Ramen is a delicious American-crafted source of protein and nutrients that takes minutes to make without sacrificing taste. This includes their classic packages that make it easy to add protein and other ingredients of your choice while it cooks, and also their Ramen Go packages that offer a healthy, microwavable option for those who truly only have 15 minutes free for lunch, whether you're working from the office or you're working at home. With Fight Ramen, you'll never be too busy to eat healthy either way. So click the link in the description and use the offer code BROKENSILICON to save 10% off on a variety of different products, including special bundles for Moore's Law is Dead fans, raw nudes if you want to make up your own recipes, Fight Go packages and other food products and cooking utensils and more. Whatever you'd prefer, using the offer code BROKENSILICON and even just clicking the link in the description really helps Moore's Law is Dead tremendously and it helps you save money on a tasty, quick-to-make lunch meal. Try Vite Ramen today. RDNA 3, man. Like, I, I really want to talk about this because, and, and this has come up as recent as this week with one of my, my sources. And I want to be clear, people, this source is one of the sources that confirmed uh, a Bergamo to me. That confirmed Phoenix specs and confirmed um, what was off in my little Phoenix specs, you know, later, um, which I guess little Phoenix isn't out, so I'm not right yet, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> like, this person knows stuff, and this person told me, you know, when I put out my Phoenix integrated graphics performance leak yesterday, um, I'm like, by the way, you, I don't think you ever bought into that. 360, 3060 performance shenanigans that was going around last year with Phoenix. But you did seem to indicate it was a lot stronger than what I'm seeing in these benchmarks. He goes, yeah, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. It, uh, <laughs> it is performing about 20% worse than I expected. And I have another person in the graphics division who says yeah, it's performing 20% worse than we expected. We're trying to make it better. It's These are two different people, different, uh, like entirely different areas of and yet they're saying the same thing. There's clearly something going on with RDNA 3 where I think they thought those performance numbers they announced before it launched, they thought they would hit that on average, and it didn't. And yeah. they're still trying to fix the drivers. So what do you think's going on with RDNA 3, and do you think it's likely to be fixed? It, might, it really depends on whether it's a hardware issue or whether it's, it's software or whether there's something that they can change i said that to an amd uh engineer I won't say which part of amd and he goes all silicon has bugs my friend so saying there's a hardware bug means nothing <laughs> yeah yeah but it's whether or not it's like routable in drivers mm -hmm. where you can find and whether it's an easy part of game code to overwrite 
so that you could say, hey, it, whatever, this is where the frame rate's tanking because it's utilizing this. But if we, we get past it by putting in this bit of code, then they can put that into a driver and then they can try to figure out in a game-by-game basis where they can put it in the in the whatever in the driver that's determining how it's rendering. But it's I'm curious with RDNA 3. And this is part of why I have a desire for better benchmarks, because it would be very interesting to see where it excels and where it falls on its face in uh hey render pass by render pass assessment of what's going on so that we can see what's tanking its performance and why in some really weird cases it performs so well. The thing is, is that regardless, this is clearly very powerful hardware. It's, Mm -hmm. it's extremely powerful hardware. Um, I think when when rendering it can boost to like 3.7 or almost four gigahertz and then it's not in gaming and they think there's something with runaway power consumption while rendering a game. Yeah. A weird clock gating or something. I, I don't think we've seen its potential. I, I'm hoping that at worst case scenario, it's um, really low hanging fruit to unlock that power for the next generation. But even if it's not as salvageable for this generation of hardware, and like I want, I want as much competition as possible on the GPU front. I hate when we get monopolies because then we get stagnation in features and a lot of other things. So I want AMD to be at its absolute strongest against NVIDIA. And um, I would love for Intel to do a good job with this space as well so that we can get a lot of variety. So part of me is always rooting for Radeon. And I think people often think Radeon's way worse than it is. It's amazing. Oh, I know. I use both. I mean, my main system uses NVIDIA, but the only systems that give me trouble are arc (laughs) and generally speaking everything just works if i'm using amd or nvidia and an individual to individual basis and obviously you can't request the internet to do this but uh, like i know the last time i showed that deus ex video that broke down a render pipeline and Mm -hmm. you know and i often when we do profiling in games we check and we see render pass by render pass and you can see how much time everything's taken up on the gpu and it's amazing how they're doing these things in so low frame times and that's like all of this hardware is pretty amazing. So when it comes to, you know, GPUs that are whipping out like some cases 400 frames per second or 200 frames per second, it's pretty remarkable across the board. And I usually just show people that video and I say, like, the fact that there's still two competitors even doing this mm. is is pretty amazing. And I I definitely I think RDNA three, like I haven't had a card. If anybody ever wanted to send me a card, I'd definitely play around with it. But I have Oh, me too. Ar- me too. <laughs> I haven't played around with RDNA 3. I'd like to. So It I is th- dropping in price pretty quickly, though, the 7900 yeah. XT. Uh, I think that, at my opinion, that card should have always been called the 7800 XT and been 750. Yeah. But I, I think we're going to get there anyways, minus the name, pretty soon. <laughs> it's, it's very amazing. Like, some of the features, some of what it's doing is very impressive. And then there's some point that's stopping it from reaching its full potential or, or really pushing the frames. But it's still doing it at what, like 30 or 40% less teraflops than NVIDIA is to do the same thing. Like what's true. But at the same time, the 7900 XTX has a similar memory bus. Mm-hmm. So maybe it has, that kind of works out, doesn't it? 20% less teraflops or something, or maybe it's 30%. 
Um, but then you have the same, a similar amount of bandwidth, average the difference to about 15% or something. Yeah. Not to mention, it's not as good at ray tracing. So that kind of washes out in that too. Yeah, I'm kind of curious as we see more uh, proprietary ray tracing accelerations. Like we haven't hit our mid-gen hardware. Like every console generation, you see a massive shift mid-generation where we figure out a few things on software and engines that completely changed the game visually. It's happened mm. in literally every game generation. And we haven't seen that with PS5 Series X yet. So what happens with RDNA hardware might be more tethered to that than we are currently aware of. Yeah, because... and, I, and I don't know what that's going to be. Just thinking from the PlayStation side. And then if I think of the Xbox, I don't think that's going to be Starfield. Um, and I don't know if that's going to be the new Last of Us game coming out this fall. Uh, cause it's, it might be cause it's naughty dog, but that thing was supposed to be a launch window game. So who knows? Um, and then I, th- there's still supposed to be some metal gear solid coming out. I don't know though. I think that's been in development for a long time. Good so point. it's probably still you maybe. Yeah. Uh, the NX gamer talked about it again in the last episode. Um, and so, but you know, is that really using older stuff too? It's supposed to have good graphics. I'm not sure what that next thing's really going to be um I, I would imagine there's one exclusive coming out this year though or third-party game that does it i would guess yeah there's gotta, be. there's gotta be some new rendering feature there's gonna be some something that we haven't thought of and you know how we schedule things where we put things in the pipeline you know what uh what we push later or whatnot that's going to make some fundamental shift that gives us you know an additional 20 or 30 percent in graphics and then one game pulls it off and then afterwards it becomes the standard that everyone follows and when because the consoles are so tethered to rdna i'm curious what those features are that we can be exploiting in the future and then you know because you you see it a lot with the last few years of a console those kind of optimizations and things that push those hardware to the limits so and then those things might scale really well on RDNA 3, and then RDNA 3 might even have better ways to deal with them. So you might see games that disproportionately favor them in a few years. But that's guesswork. We might see the exact opposite. It's so hard to know. And it, like RDNA 3 somewhat underperformed for me. I was not expecting it to hit 4090 levels, but I didn't expect 4090 to be not as Not the crazy. power consumption they announced, I didn't. If, it, if they would have announced some 500-watt chip, I would have expected that. <laughs> yeah, so I wasn't expecting it to reach 4090 levels in terms of just, it's such a big chip, right? And just so many shaders, so much. It is cut down. It's it cut is. down, though. Yeah, that's slight amount. Yeah, exactly. Eh, it's, it's cut down like 10%. And so if you think about the difference between that and AMD, again, from my perspective, it should be closer. But with the caveat that NVIDIA is better at ray tracing, so it's not completely equal, even if it did tie it. Yeah, and it's a smaller die, though, the RDNA 3 die. In its current configuration, it's a smaller die, but it has the ability to add another layer of cache on it. And you could argue they would have only designed that if they thought it could achieve that. And if they did, its die would actually be as big or bigger than NVIDIA's. Yeah. Yeah. I I think it's obvious something's just wrong here. And they didn't put that extra cache on because they realize that's not the bottleneck right now. It's the compute units. And they're saving that for if they fix it, they can add that later, launch something 20% better or something. 7950 Um, XTX and... Yeah, and, and then you see, you know, them not even release RDNA two drivers for a couple months. I 
to me, they're like, hey, two months all hands on deck on yeah. fixing our DNA three. And then something happened where they're like, hey, we can't not release drivers for our old cards for more than two months, guys. Yeah, this is getting pretty it, bad. It doesn't look good. The PR on it is not great. But it's fascinating because, you know, I asked people at AMD um, what's going on here. And a lot of these contacts at AMD are often very reserved. You know, they don't want to break their NDAs and they're like, yeah, well, yeah. I'm not talking about this. This is an upcoming product. I'll tell you this one thing, but I'm not telling you that. Or they'll say, eh, keep your hopes in check. You you guys on YouTube are always so excited for the craziest stuff. Just always bump it down a little bit. I didn't expect them after RDNA 3 came out to say anything, but it's good enough. They didn't say that. They said, oh no, something's wrong and we think we can fix it. And I'm like, so you people that often tell me I'm too optimistic are telling me that this time there really could be some magic driver that's just mind-blowing to me. I don't and know I think what, their public statements and actions seem to telegraph they, yeah, they're trying yeah. to fix it. Yeah, I don't know what it's like on the driver end. Because I know to some extent they're sifting through game code, finding ways to make changes. They're also talking about how this specific rendering feature accesses the hardware. They're they're trying to code all that stuff directly. And they could find that they have something that works for the most part, but it breaks weird things in lots of games. And then, you know, maybe there's no clear path to it. It's so it's so complicated when you get in like rendering tech. I have a render tech that I work with all the time and it's so it's fun. Like it's very fun, but there's also so many weird edge cases. They'll do something really cool, but then your water is crazy the next time you look and they'll do something really there's when you're playing with the renderer, it's, it's such, and this is the why they don't let most game developers don't let 90 to 95% of the developers touch the renderer. Mm hmm. It's such a small subset of devs that are so fixated on how stuff renders that get to touch the renderer part of hardware most of the time uh, in software. Like just to even have access to it because there's just so many ways to break a game or tank your performance or cause any issues. So I, like, I'd be really interested to see what that looks like from a driver perspective to have more insight into what potentially are ways that they could improve the performance of it if there's well, well and let's be clear they bit off a lot to chew on here i mean yeah. lovelace made ampere bigger and gave it more cash pretty much added a flow accelerator or something but fundamentally it's kind of maxwell to pascal and with amd this is a completely different architecture and yeah, how the yeah. compute units operate how the work groups operate uh, the infinity cache is changed the and now it's chiplets and on a new node. So they kind of did three things at once, whereas NVIDIA kind of did like one and a half things. Yeah. And, and and so I think it's also not defending them by any means, but understandable why this would happen. But I don't know. It'd be, it'd be such a shame if they can't get it working. Or, you know, the other thing I'm watching here is, you know, the benchmarks they showed off for the 7600 MXT looked really good if that's at all accurate like they showed a 120 watt mobile chip beat the desktop 3060 by like 20 percent yeah like what and it's on six nanometer so what are you saying if we clock this to 150 watts on desktop is this going to be better than a 30 20 percent better than 3060 is already like 3060 ti territory has anyone so like, tried like really it's really, not really out yet no so, I mean, has anyone tried taking like a 7900 xtx and you know limiting it as much as humanly possible to see how it scales down because it'd be kind of interesting if it's a really powerful uh hardware 
uh, architecture on the low end that just they're having problems scaling right it, now. It doesn't it doesn't seem to scale down as well as Lovelace with you mm. cap it. I don't think. I mean, it does similar stuff, but I think Lovelace does that better. So all I'm saying is, if AMD launches this. 200 millimeter squared, six nanometer, not even five nanometer chip. And it manages to be even around a 6700 XT, let alone a 6800 in 1080p. Then I have to go, so this is half the performance of a chip that uses five nanometer and has tripled the compute units AMD? What the hell went wrong with Navi 31? I'm thinking a similar thing with Phoenix because if you look at the 7900 XTX, it's like, if we're being generous, it's really on average a little lower than this, but let's say it's just to make the math easy, 40% better than the 6950 XT. Okay. It has 20% more compute units. So one might argue that means the compute units are only 20% better per compute unit. My leak I just did with Phoenix, 12 to 12, Rembrandt had 12 compute units, Phoenix is 12. It seems to be 30 to 40% better, meaning... Even in this model, it seems to be scaling way better than Navi 31. Yeah. Um, it, it just seems to me like not something's wrong with 31, personally. Yeah, I we'll, mean, we'll it, find out soon. But we will when they release this, and it'd be interesting to see if they did make hardware revisions. Because you know, what did we see this with in the past with GCN? Because GCN had one, then 1.1, 1.2, 1.3, 1.4 variants, and mm-hmm. then. You know, you had the initial launch, and then you even had weird things where I, there was. I remember seeing like a chart with a feature set graph that showed how it carried from one to the other, and just the general performance across the board. And we could end up with a you know GCN one situation here on this specific model. Or and would you look at that? It's seven thousand series once again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one decade later, too. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. But I think that that could be one of those scenarios where they f- maybe they fix this out. I'm hoping they can fix it in bugs because I'd love to see them suddenly get a 20% performance. I definitely saw like gamers were a little more open to it and they just wished it was a little bit more powerful this time. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it, to me, with RDNA 3, it's just like something's got to give somewhere for me to not get a little mad here. Like It's not that it didn't come in you know, 10 to 20% weaker than expected. It also didn't hit their efficiency targets either. And its ray tracing was quite disappointing to what I was told it was trying to obtain early on. That seems to be changing with updates more so, the ray tracing part of it. But it was all of it. The ray tracing didn't seem to always, it wasn't consistently there. The performance was lower than expected and the efficiency was way off. Like, I saw some comments today in my newest YouTube video talking about Phoenix's performance and how I was like, hey, if it's the same power, 25 watts, they bring you 30 to 40% more performance. That's actually pretty impressive. But then yeah. someone said, didn't they claim RDNA 3 was uh, 54% better? And it's always like <laughs> and it, that one wattage window, just like one voltage window with one specific hardware configuration and they can say that one part of the curve is at that clearly, efficiency. It's clearly an ampere situation here where what they claimed ampere was 1.9 times the efficiency and I'm like not exactly. In yeah. It's like 10% better. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's always some metric that you can look at it to try to skew it that way but it's not, not representative of the actual hardware. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm very curious what's going to happen with the the you know, integrated the APU space and the low end 
graphics space. And also, you know, AMD has been probably much more on the ball in terms of efficiency on the CPU side. Mm-hmm. So it'd be interesting to see some of those um, those pushes that they're seeing on CPU come into the GPU space in terms of efficiency. And also, you know, I'm, I, we're it's weird that their mobile chip is the one with the new AI engine and that's not in their new high-end CPU line. And kind of, because in their last presentation, they talked about the AI chipset in that uh, accelerators in the the laptops that are going to be coming out. Well, you know, I'm sorry, I'm just realizing here. I just realized, though, the APU is the CPU and the GPU. So they only claimed Zen 4 is like 25% more efficient than Zen 3. And usually they give half of the power to the CPU in an APU. So I just averaged 1.25 plus 1.54 divided by 2, 40% more performance. Actually, RDNA 3 in Phoenix might be exactly what they promised and be the only one that does. (laughs) (laughs) Because I just realized, well, you can't say it's a 25-watt chip if half of that's going to the CPU. I have to average it across what they claim for both, and it actually works out. I guess I'll say that. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to jump, cut you no, off. No, no, there. I just no, realized it's something. It's fine. I just, I don't. I guess I don't know how much more to say. I just think that it's interesting because we're getting to some feature unparity, right? Like, why are they bringing the AI chip specifically to the mobile line, but not to the desktop line? But well, speaking of feature unparity, Intel Arc. Let me uh, bring up <laughs> one reader mail question I had here, because the last time you were on, half of our discussion was what's wrong with Alchemist. Yeah. Um, and so far, I mean, they've improved it. But, you know, I have one right here. I yeah. benchmarked it against an RX 6700, which costs about the same. Actually, the 6700 typically costs less than an A770. And yeah. I found them to be basically a complete tie in performance with Arc so- usually not being able to launch its control panel. and. <laughs> It, and it, ra- I swear to, I swear it ran Battlefield 2042 like a 6500 XT. That was yeah, crazy. Yeah. Um, most games, not the case. Like there, there are a couple games where it was close to a 3070, but then there's also guys some games where it's close to a 6500 XT, and I'm seeing no indication the newest drivers have fixed that. QH Freddy writes in. Do you have any interesting game dev perspectives on Intel Arc? Like anything I, since we talked about it a year ago? Well, I think the most interesting thing is just the lack of talk about it. I I haven't heard almost any communication. We got one reader mail on this. We got like a dozen on Zen and NVIDIA and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I haven't heard almost anything on this from the game developer perspective. There's so oh. little there's so little talk about it. You know, it's it's to be to unless you're talking consoles, and even when you're talking consoles, they don't necessarily even talk about AMD outright. They don't talk about like in the PC space, devs do talk CPU wise, they talk about both vendors. Mm-hmm. But on the GPU front, they're very NVIDIA focused. Um, so most conversation is all around NVIDIA. And then, you know, AMD is like 10% of the conversation. A lot of that's been just around FSR and mm-hmm. us liking, like a lot of people like what FSR gives them the opportunity to do. But Intel hasn't really offered as much in, as it's not relevant enough for devs to talk about it enough to cause a big stir yet. And they would need much bigger hardware wins than beating a 6700 to do that, right? <laughs> yeah. So, and they would need mass well, adoption. Well, using 50% more power to beat the 6700 with yeah, a better I, node. <laughs> yeah, and I've seen people like talk recently about how um, 
it looked like AM, Intel stole market share from AMD, not Nvidia. But I think that's still that has to be including um, laptop graphics. No, it's shipments. It's shipments. Yeah, so they shipped four million because they couldn't ship any of them the previous quarters. And like I, for everyone listening, like I told you, they would. They shipped four million at the end of the year, and yeah. it showed up as four million shipped. And if they're selling so well, why is the A750 going for 150 after tax in Japan in bulk right now? Why is every retailer I'm talking to saying they haven't sold a single Alchemist card for three months? Why are they dropping prices left and right? Like, oh, so it's just the shipment doesn't equal sales scenario. Yeah, they just shipped a bunch of crap that no one will buy. And I don't know what the price is. I, I have talked to Dan about this. Like, at what price do you tell someone to get? an A770 over a 6700 or an A750 over 6600 and he's like uh, uh, 150 maybe because at that point even in the worst optimized games like it'll beat a 6500 XD hopefully or something the only way that we could we would even game devs would talk about uh arc right now is if they got a console win or a portable win that's that would shift the conversation to it because then we would start looking into it. We can't look into it for like a segment of a segment of a market. So right now, the onus is almost entirely on Intel. Game devs aren't paying attention to it unless Intel gets in our face and makes us pay attention to it, right? And so it's all going to be on them and drivers. It's not going to be about game developers optimizing their systems for it. When you have a sizable market share or good incentives or a very interesting piece of kit, that's when game developers start targeting it naturally. Yeah. And unless you have any install base or like FSR, a software you're trying to work into all of your games, why would it even come up? You know, if the Steam Deck shipped with Arc graphics in it, we would all have been talking about it for the last year and a half. But because it's not in any hardware where you have to look at it exclusively, it's just not something we're talking about as much. So it's interesting as a novelty, but the initial launch window hurt most momentum in terms of conversation and then that hurt sales which made devs not really even have to focus or talk about it and i do think it's a shame because i would i would like more competition in the market as much as i possibly as much as it's possible it'd be great to see all three players strong and forcing each other to make really interesting hardware or problem solving hardware in different ways so that we see more innovation in that space um, I do want to say this, too, because I have to bring this up. What happened, though, is John Petty put out this report of market share. All a bunch of websites ran with it, even though Arc doesn't even, to my knowledge, show up as 0.1% on Steam Hardware Survey. And John Petty put out a statement, and I'm quoting, Intel numbers are an estimate based on their financial report. I would not get excited about the closeness and shipping levels, as this could be influenced by ASPs and other data. So John Petty... And I've been I've been talking to some people who are looking into this. John Petty basically said, "Don't take those numbers as fact." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I I would go well. Then why did you include it in your report? But uh, I've seen uh, I've just seen a lot of outlets report on it, which was kind of interesting. It's a slow news week, man. Like <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and Maybe wanna... this just like Dell or HP. Intel gave them a huge discount on like a bunch of CPUs, and there's a crate full of Arc CPUs sitting in one of their warehouses or something. Well, no, but that has to be true. And I forgot which one it is, but like 
Yeah, the OEM, but the problem with the OEMs are they have to say what graphics card it comes with, and people won't buy their systems that have ARC in it. So I don't know. I, I from where I'm sitting, this thing is just a complete sales dud. Yeah, and it's because you know it isn't a good product. Like I think I'm not going to sugarcoat it and. I think the architecture is interesting, but it fell so flat. It's interesting and, on paper. It doesn't seem to do what it was supposed to, though. Yeah, and you know maybe it's worth uh, like approaching a second attempt of it, not a second demo. I know you're going to argue that they this is their third attempt or something already, but it's <laughs> well, it is DG two, you know. So, but Battle Mage, you know, be, that'd be the third attempt. It's literally codenamed DG three. They're Unfortunately, Intel is losing a lot more money than they think they anticipated across the board. But I don't think that they can continue to... They need strong graphics presence or they're going to lose even more server market share because it's getting less and less reasonable Mm -hmm. from data center perspective to purchase anything that doesn't offer CPU and GPU at this point in time. Well, you know, NVIDIA for years has made data center cards that just have like four 104 dies on like one PCB. And for applications that, you know, SLI isn't an issue. It can just use all four dies efficiently. There's not a problem here. It's not a video game. Like, you almost wonder if what Intel should do, and I agree they shouldn't, you know, technically AXG is dead. So that's gone. Raj's effect, he's not gone, but he's demoted. Like, but they're kind of keeping, I think, the pipeline for like one die on life support. Yeah. I would think it would be a dis... I'm just going to say, I don't think they have the money to do a bunch of lineups for the next five years. They're, they're out of money. They don't have, they can't ship another 4 million cards that no one buys and they get no revenue from. They're already having issues. But it would be a shame if they shuttered all the work they've done, though, because eventually they they got to use this for integrated graphics anyway. So I would suggest they should try to make at least a you know, 40, 60 level performance or less, maybe even 40, 50. Mm. And you just ship that every couple years for a reasonable price with understandable margins. And then at least you keep the driver development going. And maybe in five years, they will be where they need to be to launch something, you know, the 70 level and the 80. Because the the problem is they went about it backwards, which they announced they were going to conquer enthusiast gaming overnight. And yeah. They literally have a roadmap showing (laughs) ultra enthusiasts this year. And I'm like, I don't think so. Um, I I think also Intel's looking at the data center and realizing that like, well, yeah, maybe they could use a bunch of battle mage dies. I don't know. You know, maybe not though. Maybe you need one big die like NVIDIA and AMD. Yeah. But there's also like, they're getting, obviously Intel has their server market share, but they also watched their server market share transition from being giant, clusters of servers with tons of CPUs to less and less CPUs per amount of GPUs. And then seeing GPUs take an even bigger percentage of real estate Mm -hmm. in servers outright, and then losing more and more of that market share over the years, it's not having a graphics architecture is making is running the risk of having them be irrelevant, even conversationally in terms of building big uh, whatever the supercomputers, the crazy supercomputers, all of that stuff. They're going to lose contracts, not having enough. Like they need to keep their graphics card uh, architecture up to date and competitive if they're going to win any of these contracts going forward. It's absolutely, but it's just, I feel like it's a chicken and egg situation because when I talk to people in cool. Data Center right now, they want NVIDIA. Or they might want like the MI250X or something, like one of those crazy ones from AMD or Hopper. 
and they have no interest in it's already hard for AMD to sell their professional graphics cards, let alone Intel. Like they like yeah. I've I've talked to people in charge of purchasing at data centers and they're like, oh, Intel's not even a consideration here. No. We want stability. So the problem is I agree that's an issue, but it is a chicken and egg situation. If no one's gonna buy it for three generations and they don't have the money, what can they do? I I would argue maybe they should take a Vega approach. And like after Battle Mage, because like that design's mostly locked in by now, but like maybe Celestial and Druid. Well, number one, they should stop calling it Arc because that brand is done. Dead. Like, but they should rebrand. Uh, and number two, maybe they should just make like a three hundred millimeter square die that's for compute, but can also continue to be used for gaming. But it's mostly efficient at compute, so they can at least sell those in a data center. Yeah. That is a, a suggestion I would have. Yeah, I I definitely think that would help, but I. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I see NVIDIA is so tenacious and they're going to just keep going. Nothing's going to yeah. stop them from continuing. Right. If Intel doubles performance, NVIDIA is like, yeah, well, we did too and we're ahead. So, yeah. So <laughs> it's very hard to get people to pivot away from NVIDIA. Like you have to, the, the biggest ones I've seen it, from pivoting away from Intel on CPU front, all it had to take was some reliability. It had to take some of that, and they lost a little bit of that ground, but NVIDIA is still incredibly strong on all of those fronts. So it's it's really just whether or not someone has enough distaste for NVIDIA that they're willing to consider. Oh, and it's out there, by the way. Like, oh, it NVIDIA is. tries so hard to make people mad at them. But so if they if something like that ever did happen, I think they'd be willing to like leave them in a second if it actually made sense. It just... From their perspective, the people I talk to, it doesn't make sense. It has to be everything. They would have to win on every front, and they would have to have a software solution. I think I said this last time, but I was, I, I said that the biggest opportunity any additional graphics partner has, including AMD, is when Unreal buys the world, and mm-hmm. that's when everything is integrated into the Unreal tool set. There is an opportunity to bypass CUDA for maybe the first time. Because instead of like running like unique little pieces of software, and I've run lots of pieces of software that just favor NVIDIA outright, that make it hard as an artist or a 3D artist or a game developer to get away on PC from anything other than NVIDIA. And there is probably the only opportunity coming up when Unreal continues to grow and Unreal pulls in versions of everything into their tool set. Substance Painter, Maya, all of that at some point in time is going to be some feature set within Unreal. And there will be opportunities for additional hardware vendors if Unreal is open towards them as I think they will be. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just jumping in right here then. I mean, speaking of you know a chance to take market share, but you have to be better at everything, I want to start talking about FSR. Like, what does FSR need to do to actually get more adoption than DLSS and possibly beat it outright? Because people make me make fun of it, but let's be honest, FreeSync won. It did. Like, G-Sync still exists, but it's not really a factor anymore. Almost every monitor supports both. AMD doesn't have an issue in that department. No. Like, FSR is very far away from that, I would say, though. It's not. It's not as far away as we think. So okay. if we look at, was it Dead Space just shipped with FSR as well as... I think for Spoken shipped with FSR. There's a bunch of PC, sorry, console games that are using FSR first in consoles, and they're using them default in consoles. And also in switching between performance and quality modes, we're going to see because 
DLSS isn't available as a solution, we're going to see a lot of game devs targeting FSR first, especially for if, if they have partnerships. Because on the game developer front, partnerships are the most important th- thing, depending on whether they're targeting console first or hardware vendor first. It changes mm-hmm. the nature of how they build their game. If they're working with just a publisher outright or they're freewheeling, then they will target PC standards. And then we'd be shipping builds with DLSS or any of that if we were going to be including one of those feature sets. But as soon as you get a deal with Microsoft or Sony where they're, you know, they want you in one of their trailers or they're, um, they would like to see builds or they're looking at maybe, you know, assisting with funding in some way or another, right? Or marketing or something. Then all of a sudden the conversations start shifting, but you need to be showing it running on our hardware at this point. We'll ship you dev kits, things like that. And then when you're in that scenario, you have the hardware, you can run it on that, and then you're going to be looking for for software solutions that run across everything instead of relying on just existing in the PC ecosystem. And that's where FSR has its biggest shot, is some titles like that that are we don't know, because gaming kind of works in a weird structure where one out of every 10 big publishers' mm-hmm. games explode in terms of popularity and grow absolutely massive. And one of those games is going to do FSR really well, and it's going to target FSR over DLSS because it had some console contract. Mm-hmm. One of those. And we're going to see that in the next year or so. Okay. We're, and that's when I think FSR adoption's going to skyrocket. Right now, the thing is, is that it's, it's not completely free to use any of them. We... Yeah played with implementing them and you do have to test all of your visuals you implement it the way that it recommends but you know we had an issue when we were trying to get dlss working in our game with uh water playing really weird so it ran really well in all sorts of places but because we're doing a custom rendering approach we there's a lot of things that if you're doing realistic graphics right now it's easier than almost any other approach whereas historically it was the opposite historically if you went with a stylized yeah. game you would be able to, you would be freeing up graphics resources to do this, this, and this. And nowadays, the PBR pipeline and the way that the engines are built is realism first. And if you're trying to do anything special, then you're doing a bunch of weird things to your render, you're grabbing, you're doing depth passes to do some specific Well, I remember on Borderlands 2, I played that on PC, and in the INI files, you could turn off the outlining, yeah. and that gave you like a 20% performance boost. And I'm like, well, I'm going to do that. I didn't realize like putting these cartoony outlines it still looked like a cartoonish comic book game, in my opinion, even without the outlines. And I thought, oh, I'm, I'm more accurate. It's easier to see enemies. Done. And I get more performance. Let's do it. You well, know? it depends on you can you have the option when you're doing these games to do these things as a post process and keeping right. things in the same pipeline, which is what Borderlands would be doing there. Or you can grab it at a geometry level and do it as a secondary geometry pass mm-hmm. with outlines. So there's something called inverse hauling, where you like literally take an additional model of it and you double it and then you use that to generate the outline but it also doubles the geometry in your scene or you use depth buffers and depth passes and then try to catch everything where it is on an every frame by frame basis and then draw an outline around it which is a post process which is so when you're doing things in these different ways if you do the the first approach where you're doing a bunch of depth passes you're you're playing with the renderer where it sorts things to try to grab things and add unique effects to them, then it gets harder to implement DLSS and FSR. If you're doing just outright whatever Call of Duty style Battlefield 
typical visuals, it's getting almost a little easier to implement them because you're going to have less conflict between all of the custom rendering tech that you're doing. So we actually, in our game, I mean, obviously I'm just talking, no one knows what it looks like yet. Hopefully Mm -hmm. by the summer I can talk more openly about that, but it's, um, you know, uh, what we're doing with rendering and whatnot, we found specifically they're both they're both good but we just we had a very narrow time window and we had some visual bugs that came up with DLSS so we ended up having to do a presentation of it using FSR which was fine i was i was open to using either and whatever worked the advantage with FSR is i did not know what kind of laptop when you pass it to somebody what they have in it and you know that it runs on everything and when you're working on unreal 5 right now it's very likely it'll push hardware too hard at specific instances and you might need something like FSR to catch it. And TSR adds a lot of re- like strange artifacting right now, I find uh, Unreal mm-hmm. Solution. And the latest version's better. So the one that came with 5.1 is better for Unreal's, but it doesn't seem to work as well at low resolutions compared to DLSS and uh, FSR 2.1. Mm-hmm. Well, so let me ask you this question then. Uh, I was talking to a couple of contacts about what could really make FSR whim. And a lot of things came up in that discussion. Like one sent me these pictures of uh, like FSR adoption per month. And it showed like, you know, just six months ago, or maybe a few months ago, it was like 50 games. And then a month ago, it was like 90 games. Now it's over 100 games. Yeah. So it may be slowing down, but that is like a massive increase in the amount of games that support FSR 2.0 month over month. Yeah. And it's like half as many as like the 200 DLSS games or something crazy. But then I thought to myself, yeah, but isn't like 100 games like the last two years of big games? (laughs) Like three years, four years? Like, okay, so it doesn't support Battlefield 5. I mean, you can max that out on RDNA 3 anyways without FSR. Do you really need it? Yeah. And I'm starting to... So that came up like, oh, maybe it is getting more adoption than I realized because once you support the top 100 games, you really need anything else. Yeah. But then I also... This idea came up like, at the end of the day, DLSS has a head start. At the end of the day, NVIDIA is going to keep paying for games to have DLSS support. They have the money. How can AMD ever get to is being in as many games every year unless they make it so that it also even runs better on nvidia the idea came up like it's an open source you know software couldn't they put in inputs for like tensor cores or something (laughs) like couldn't like and then just say hey nvidia it leverages your tensor cores it's probably not as efficient as it could be our cards run it better but these games don't even support dlss so if you actually like your customers why don't you help us with this open source software. And then if they ever did that, then devs might go, well, there's no reason to use DLSS. This does everything. Didn't I wonder AMD, what you think about that. Didn't AMD just talk about using their AI engines in RDNA 3 for accelerating a new version of FSR? I thought there was some... I leaked that they're working on that, and yeah. they've talked about using it for games. I don't know that they personally confirm that for FSR, but they have confirmed they're working on stuff adjacent to that, at least. But if they do a version of that and then have it run even better on NVIDIA GPUs, then that could be a path for them to get even more adoption. But but then it's like, do you want to run better than them, or do you just want to make it so DLSS isn't an argument anymore? Because it would remove the argument if it ran well on everything. It's, it's already in most visual space very comparable. The big thing that AMD has to work on is how it's dealt with in transparencies and in Mm -hmm. particles. So like 
people didn't complain about 80% or 90% of what Dead Space remake looked like with FSR 2.1 running on consoles. They compared about the part, complained about the particle effects. That was the one thing. The particles looked a little bit like they were raining weird. And in when we were running it, it looked great in most places, but water, the top layer of water occasioned its mirror. And I think God of War had the exact same thing show up when they had mm-hmm. their FSR 2.1. So those are the areas that if AMD can improve the algorithm visually in those, the amount of complaints will be way down and then reduce ghosting across the board. And there, I think their strategy of being so widespread on consoles, if they could get phone support as well, that would destroy the uh, long-term feasibility of DLSS going forward. Mm -hmm. So that alone, because they want to put, I mean, Fortnite's on phones. So yeah, hundred percent. So all of those things, like you might, they might not even have to do the NVIDIA hardware. If they had phones, consoles, and PCs unified supporting FSR and they fixed their ghosting and particle and uh, transparency layer part of their algorithm, I think that would cut the vast... And uh, now they'll also need to uh, deal with frame generation. Um, Which they're, they say they're working on that too. Yeah, uh, once they have frame generation in there as well and prove that they're equivalent or... Uh, even slightly worse, then they'll they'll start to become an argument, especially if it's on mobile, because mobile is where the double frame generation would be even better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of phones have one twenty hertz displays now too. So, but they're they're why. worried about heat. So phones mm-hmm. would run that specific pass as a means to reduce power consumption and heat rather than. So there's there is approaches. So I think that if they went wide, they would they'll win the long the long battle with FSR as in it would be the standard. And then we would stop talking about DLSS, but they, and again, they could use the machine learning aspects of their architecture and RDNA three and maybe do nothing for NVIDIA, but just make it clear in a statement. It's open source NVIDIA. You can make your tensor cores accelerate this. You just have to do it yourself. We're not doing it for you. Yeah. Yeah. And then NVIDIA can eventually call it their version of DLSS and whatnot and take it. No, (laughs) it's just what they did with, uh, free sync so yeah yeah it's no a- they might though you know that's an interesting argument i heard tim at hardware unbox make uh for xc super sampling that seems to work well when accelerated by an intel card but the uh open source works on everything version is apparently just absolute garbage and he's like isn't fsr open source couldn't you have just copied their code and like <laughs> added your own spin to it in intel how much <laughs> money did you spend making this yeah yeah it's kind of sad but it's a I, it's an interesting future. It's making it really hard to determine. I've seen kind of interesting takes on the FSR DLSS saying it's an opportunity for devs to be lazy and stuff, but I don't necessarily... Samantha Vimes asked that. Do you see it as a crutch or do you just see it as an optional nice thing to have? Like, What do you think about the people that say it's just allowing devs to be lazy and fix it at the end? Uh, it's not... I don't know if it's... Lazy is the wrong word a lot of the time. It's complicated, Right. It allows us to show better performing of our builds of our games earlier because, Mm. you know, I don't know if you recall, but games like The Last Guardian, a lot of in-progress games, especially if you're doing something really unique feature-wise, sometimes perform really terrible for a big portion of game development. And having features like that lets you show off the game more. At least test, play test it too. Play test it more and that to improve um yeah 
it allows you to to show it more and ship builds earlier that are actually playable than you would otherwise. And that's it's very useful. So I think the tech is is very special. We're also pushing for a big rendering push in regards to engines. Like Unreal 5 modern the graphics features we're pointing to engines are getting much, much more expensive to make these games. So it's getting us over the transition hurdle to some extent. Hopefully in a few years when we iron out some of the kinks and we optimize some of the performance across it, we're not going to see it released as a crutch as much. Mm-hmm. But we're we're asking a lot of geometry, a lot of textures, a lot of things from games right now. And we're also at the... Um, like land of diminishing returns in regards to how it looks. You know, something that looks 20, 30% better than last gen might be four times harder to process. So if we want to impress people with this generation, we're kind of relying on doing things like this to make it make it easier to actually get that graphics, uh, the sorry, the fit to the next level in graphics there, right? So I don't know if you saw like the NX Gamer analysis of the Dead Space remake recently. We talked about it on the last episode. He kind of went through his opinion on a lot of the issues that popped up. It had to do with VRS, variable rate shading. Yeah. And which I believe they just turned off on all systems eventually because it yeah. was just making things look like junk. But his opinion was, you know, this is an example of like so many times people going, oh, I wish I had DLSS and dynamic resolution and variable rate shading and this other colon method over here. And this was a game that turned it all on at once, all of it. And it looked terrible. And he's like, you need to decide. Are do you, cause there's games that just use dynamic res and it looks fine or just DLSS and it looks fine or one or the other, or a combination of FSR and dynamic res, or maybe not. And Jonathan Wagner writes in and says, I tell him Brian with DLSS, FSR and VRS, all reducing rendering workload. What techniques or features would you like to see included in future architectures to make the most out of each pixel? And so my question is, what is the holy grail to you of all of these VRS, FSR, uh, dynamic res, DLSS, and even like things, um, was I going to, and even like frame generation, like we have a lot of different ways of goosing the numbers here, frankly. Yeah. And they're not always noticeable. I would think the Holy grail would be, you just have an algorithm that knows what to use in this scene. Dynamic res looks better in this scene. FSR looks better in this pixel turn on VRS. I'm sure that's probably asking You can't do it it on a scene by scene basis. You would have to do it on, um, I think, you know, you'd have to look at specific things. VRS, when done perfectly, and it's hard because PS5 doesn't have hardware feature set for it, so they have to mm-hmm. do it um, in other ways, whereas Xbox and PC has full hardware feature sets for it. So the ideal way is, if you know that pixels are going to be like in the depth of field pass or something anyways, VRS is perfect because you're dropping performance and those pixels are going to be blurred. So it, it's it's fine to have that feature set on. And then knowing which pixels are going to be very similar color and whatnot, it's just free performance at that point. But when you have it too aggressive at all, then it makes a lots of visual downgrades and that's not ideal. So we need VRS to be perfect. Once it's perfect, it's just free performance. Uh, once I just control my light. Okay. <laughs> the sun went down. When we have VRS, VRS actually behaving the way it's supposed to, then it'll be just free gains. And that will be wonderful. And then coupling that, the, obviously the issue is um, 
The issue is where you're looking, whether or not you need more resolution for specific things, and then what passes are going are already taking half res things and now having elements of it that are and now another step of lower resolution. You know, playing with the uh, PSVR two. Mm-hmm. It's weird when you watch videos of it because the foveated rendering when you're wearing it makes the resolution look great all the time. But when you're, um, when you look at like videos of people playing yeah. it back, you can see all the pixels where their eyes aren't looking are much lower. And that's, that's what you want. You want the experience to be perfect, but the performance to be optimizing itself everywhere it can. And, and maybe you, you could create like a streamer mode where the video records and it, you turn off foveated rendering if you have the strong enough pc to not need to use it so streamers it looks better or something you know and it might be that in the future you know instead of dynamic dynamic resolution scaling it's dynamic fsr scaling between the quality modes on frame by frame basis in ways that you don't notice and um you know once we get even better with that technology because to be honest as much as you know some people love or hate on those the improvements in the last three or four years on all of them has been pretty groundbreaking seeing oh, yeah. what dlss went from the beginning to now oh, i hated dlss i think we both did and now it's great so that's with fsr like fsr looks much better now two looks way better than one and 2.1 fixed a lot of ghosting a lot of artifacting and there's just areas of some concern and you know sub pixel details are still an issue on both of them to some degree so as we get better and better with all of them um some version of these are going to be like the best best case going forward in the future. And if there was a way for games to dynamically assess what's necessary on a frame by frame load and then ramp it up, because it might be good for variable rate to get more aggressive in the heat of the action for one individual frame versus dropping resolution across the entire frame, like dynamic resolution does Mm -hmm. rather. So it could be used instead of an always on thing. It could be a levels of intensity because in theory, it should be better visual quality than outright dropping resolution the way the dynamic resolution scaling does right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so I'm just trying to think then, well, actually before I ask the final question about it, let me just ask this one too from Matthew Duke. Oh, Tom and Brian, why do you think that asynchronous time warp is only used in VR? I tried Comrade Stinger's demo on my LG C2, and the effects felt great. 60 FPS felt like 120 at a minimal loss to image quality. Also, can phobiated rendering be used to some extent in regular games as well? I think so, but you want like a camera on a laptop screen to use phobiated rendering is what I've heard they're trying in some demos and stuff. You need eye tracking, right? Right. So you'll need a camera to use phobiated rendering if you want to do it outside of VR. But like, why do you think... um, why do you think uh, like things like DLS three took so long to come out too? Because that seemed like an obvious trick they could have done for a while. Well, it's something that we've done in TVs for forever. Although a lot mm-hmm. of people hate it and turn it off because it turns on the soap opera. Oh, I hate but, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but and you know some of those frames aren't the best looking. But right, like cheaper TVs will advertise they have it, and it looks terrible compared to like a high end TV. Yeah, exactly. So the quality of the frames being generated is obviously an issue the size of the display makes it more like a smaller display will make you more forgivable forgiving of the frames that are being generated than that Mm. so to some extent display technologies come into play um it's and the other thing is it adds frame time and we didn't have like to be honest with the 40 series there's a lot of idle hardware on the entire stack whether it's you know tensor cores or 
there's, there's nothing currently really populating the 4090. Like mm-hmm. if we put the 4090 in a console, that would be making the craziest looking games we've ever seen in our entire life in terms of what yeah, kind especially of if you streamline like the data between that, the CEPU, the SSD got exactly. So if you had hardware like that, that you could focus directly on what it's capable of is absolutely insane. But we, we didn't have the hardware to do it fast enough for gameplay yet. TVs get away with it because they, they, they just suck the delay. They don't care. They'll take the delay because they can display the time, the sound and the video later, and it doesn't affect anything. But when you're playing games, that affects input latency. So for the longest time, we didn't have technology that was capable of doing it fast enough with a high enough quality to make a big enough difference. But with well, this generation of like hardware, right now, if we're being honest, is when 120 hertz is standard. Yeah. In displays and before as well. that, yeah. Yeah, and enough people have the displays to do that because you know, Hardware Unbox talked about that pretty openly. He's like, honestly, you kind of need a 180 hertz display for it to not show the artifacts noticeably. Yeah. Well, that's that's what happens with all LCDs, right? The higher you get refresh, because I mean, LCDs in general have native artifacts. They motion blur. They you know, have persistence blur and lots of other things. And the higher the refresh rate you get, the less noticeable those problems are. And, mm-hmm. you know, I heard box did a really good one I think today, but they were talking about uh, flickering because it's softening extreme highlights on the eyes and the rats and plague's tail on alternating frames. So you get essentially a like strobing flickering effect happening with specific effects. So there's, there's so many things to account for in frame generation that are just, it's out of the eyes of the developer. It's so hard to test for consistency. And even if you find it, you have no means to, to control it. Mm-hmm. So, and I did watch that hardware unboxed video today, like a relook at DLSS three, and it still seems like in su- it's still not perfect. Like, what is your take on frame generation? Is this something like? So I think there's a lot of people that would make the argument people made about DLSS before is like, should we be wasting our time on developing this because it you're never gonna get as good latency? And I do have some ideas about like a holy grail. Like, could you have a system where you already have to turn on, I believe, was NVIDIA Boost, which throws out some frames actually for lower latency. Could you do a thing where if you sense an artifact, you throw out that frame and that actually helps with the latency or something? So maybe DLSS 3 doesn't double your frame rate, but it almost doubles and you actually get a little better. You have so much awareness of your frame. I know. it's That'd be very, very, very hard to do. (laughs) But that's the holy grail, you know, really. Yeah, yeah. I could talk about this a little bit in regards to what you were just saying. What's my thoughts overall on DLSS 3? And I think um, Hardware Unboxes video is very insightful when it comes to this because uh, I'm watching it and they're like, why isn't it being implemented evenly across every game? And then I'm immediately thinking, where are they grabbing their render pipeline to do something custom visually? And if mm-hmm. they're doing that, is UI getting baked in at some oh. part where it's hard to grab and separate again? And then is it the algorithm's job to occlude it to like DLSS 3's job to basically know what persistent UI is? But then you could end up with situations where it refuses to update UI when it's necessary on frames, or is it the job of the game developer to grab it and put it before UI in the render pipeline so that it's generating the frames and then rendering the UI on top? And then are they obligated to update the UI at the refresh of the generated frames? I was going to say, so you're showing UI at like 30 frames or 60 frames instead of, you know, 120. Or or you grab it. You know, so there's these questions, and now all of a sudden are you now rendering your 
your UI at higher frame rates, then you're doing the rest of your game logic and then you're working. And that would be really, like if that was in a console, I know we would do that. If we knew that we were targeting this, everyone had access to it, it was worth nestling it in that part of the pipeline to take advantage of it. And all we have to do is run our UI to whatever the frame rate of DLSS after the fact. That's probably how you would approach it if you had that level of reliability in terms of how much hardware it was going to be in. But in the current scenario, I'm just, I'm looking at it and when I'm watching that video, I'm like, how much you want to bet each of the games that can't put it into the right spot are doing something really custom in a render pass that's making it so hard to find the place to, to work it in. And then other games where it's really clear, it's like, no, actually we have our UI come in really separate, comes right at the end, it doesn't need any post effects or anything on top of it, and that way we can just put DLSS 3 in the completely right space and we can have the UI separate and then it runs great. So there's obviously visual artifacts with it. I think at high refresh rates, it's very good. I think at low... Well, in games that don't require a ton of input. Exactly. You know, like, like that's where it's good. Not multiplayer. It's not as useful in multiplayer games. It's much more useful in single player games that need additional frames to smooth out weird hitches and stuff. But provided that you can grab the UI and move it to the right layer to not interfere with it. That's kind of my overall thoughts on it. It's very interesting tech. Um, games are better place for it than other things because I'm not a big fan of generated frames for live action and mm-hmm. movies and stuff. But, you know, people seem to like as much movement as humanly possible as games. So that can be nice. But it's just a matter of um, whether or not you've. The, the problem with it right now is it was introduced last year at points where games are already two to three, four years in development in some cases, and it's not as easy to retroactively get it into the right place. If they were aware of the tech a few years ago, game developers could have targeted and made sure that they left that part available so that they could get it in knowing that they were anticipating technologies like this. Well, so here's a fundamental issue, though, I have with DLSS 3 that I don't see brought up enough, at least in my opinion. Um, it is a good option though. The yeah. caveat, it's a good option for like flight simulator. I think if they could r- improve the artifacts dramatically, improve the latency a little bit or as much as you can, it's never going to be as good as native. Um, like that could make it so that like one out of 10 games, I turn it on because eh, good, good. I'll turn it on one out of 10 games. But so many comparisons will say, oh, look, you know, this was running Flight Simulator at 60 frames. Now it's running it at 120. And I would go, yeah, if you're not using DLSS. And why are we comparing DLSS 3 to native when it should be getting compared to not even just DLSS quality mode, DLSS performance mode? Because DLSS performance mode can double your frame rate. And I know there's artifacts, but are they really as bad as the artifacts you get out of DLSS 3? Yeah. So I have a fundamental question where I go, you know, we have FSR ultra performance mode. We have DLSS ultra performance mode. Maybe you don't want to use those in 1080p, but you certainly might in 4K. And it's hard for me to believe that some games in 4K ultra performance mode DLSS don't actually look better than DLSS 3 with quality DLSS turned on because they probably look better and you have better input lag, and well, it's, it's real. How much worse is it? You know, it's, so you're, you're really sacrificing resolution for performance when you're turning on regular DLSS performance versus. And DLSS- there's remote scenarios like CPU bound ones where DLSS three makes sense, but I just can't help but point out. I think 99.9 percent of the time, I'm just going to use DLSS ultra performance mode over frame generation. Yeah, get the same result with better latency. 
prim, uh, flight simulator is an interesting example because that turned out that I felt like everything you threw at it wasn't fixing the problem until 7950X 3D. Oh, like, yeah. Or, yeah, and I guess then, eventually 7800X 3D because now we're finally getting better, higher, consistent frame rates in that game specifically. Yeah, 50% better performance on a 13900K. Yeah, that one game. So that's that's kind of one of the more interesting games specifically for um, needing more CPU specifically. But I yeah, I don't know. I don't know with DLSS 3. I think that like in some cases, if it's very high frame rate already, then it's it's the quality improvements are probably better than going to performance. But in the opposite scenario where your frame rate would be a bit lower, then the artifacts from DLSS 3 would be worse than looking at DLSS quality uh, performance mode. So might be better to sacrifice the resolution to get your frame rate better in those cases. But I don't know. I played around with it, but I turned it off because I didn't like the UI stuff. That was bothering me significantly mm-hmm. when I was messing around with it. So I... I can't handle jarbled UI. So once they completely no. fix that, I'm I might give it more of a whirl. But I also don't love. Yeah, because like in Age of TV. Empires, that might be good because that's probably like a single threaded bottleneck thing. So if they put that in there, maybe I'd use it. Um, but that's an RTS game, so UI is kind of important there. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I guess the final question I would have about all of this is: Is there anything FSR three could try to do? You think that would come out of left field and beat DLSS three or? Is it just being the same thing open source? Like, is there anything they could? Because again, I think if they could have a better system of rejecting artifacts, they got that a, might help. If they had a better system of rejecting artifacts, and also they're the first to something. I feel like with the last AMD was actually pretty good in the past about being forward looking with features, yeah. and then they weren't getting implemented their features, and now they're playing a follow up case with Nvidia. But if they actually think of something useful, especially in regards to streamers. There has to be something that they can do with the yeah. with the um, FSR and something regarding maybe AVX technology or something in their next line of GPUs using FPGAs, where it it's using all of this stuff, it's capturing it properly for streaming with no latency, it's making it easier to add whatever inputs and stuff on top of it, right? Like I, there there has to be some. I don't know. I'm just talking off the top right. of my head, but there has to be some additional thing that they could be looking at to be in front of this, not behind this. And if they're just playing catch up with NVIDIA on every front, matching them or improving the quality above them isn't going to be enough for the this, anything to shift in their direction. They need to think ahead of them one step on something. Yeah, they did used to, but it never had the follow through. And I think it's oh, almost it it had to follow through on consoles, but then it wasn't getting sure. implemented on PC and it wasn't being standardized. So we need, I, I want to see more of that AMD. I, I like what they're doing. I think their hardware is very strong and um, competitive in a lot of the right ways, but they need to be more forward feature, uh, forward thinking on features again. And that would make them more interesting in regards to software features. I know they bought a software company, not, like four or five years ago and hopefully oh yeah they did i forgot yeah yeah though yeah i don't remember the name of them but they need to get more aggressive on that front thinking ahead on what kind of features especially like things have gotten so stream related so cross-platform if they had i don't know if they had some software feature that they could implement i think that 
I'm, I don't know what kind of angle it could look at. Maybe, maybe it's uh, more accurately tuning, you know, if they were assessing and trying to standardize visuals across multiple displays or something like that. Like there's some feature set that it's doing that's accounting for something. I don't know, or lighting conditions, or I don't know if FSR specifically could do that, or if they would be using graphics hardware to do that. But they need they need something, something hardware feature wise. No, it, it's true. I mean, they're working on, and and you know, there's just a talk given of like a focus of RDNA four and AI, and what are they going to do? And I, I remember they said, you know, why are we wasting everything? Flow accelerators, all this like bespoke hardware, on trying to get another ten percent out of lowering resolution. Why don't we just use this to have like a thousand enemies on screen or offload like these other types of physics or something like, yeah. and yeah, I, I think the problem with that is though, is that you just, is it going to be another Tress effect situation where it's like, yeah, you have the best hair tech. No one used it, but Tomb Raider, you know, <laughs> like that, that is probably the better way to go about it. Like, Hey, in these three big AAA games, this isn't phys X, you know, physics the popcorn simulator where they just throw popcorn everywhere and call it better physics than amd yeah you have a chance here amd to fundamentally have better physics ai in a game if you did that it could work on the con hey unlike before now it works on the consoles yeah yeah. you know here's your chance to really get out there and be like hey on ps5 xbox and rdna3 we can do this thing you know, yeah. the problem is it have to work on rdna2 as well because that's what the consoles use yeah but. go back one generation although we're seeing like FSR biggest shot is because of that. It's doing yep. the best right now because it's in the consoles first, which is why, you know, we saw for spoken and it really, it needs like two more patches. And then those complaints people had because yeah, now it is starting to ship as the forefront technology in those games, but it needs, it needs those couple last visual tweaks and then it'll get a lot more adoption. And it really is getting better, you know. I game primarily on NVIDIA, or almost, basically only on NVIDIA lately. And my brother Dan, he uses, uh, he has an RDNA 2 system, and he hated FSR when it first came out. Like, people were surprised. Like, ooh, what's Dan's take going to be? Because yeah. uh, they thought because he has AMD, he might defend it. He's like, this thing's shit. RSR sucks. I hate it. That's dumb. Yeah. And then, you know... A year later, he's like, dude, it, it works fantastic in all of my games now. I turn yeah. it on every game. So. Yeah, it's just reframes, right? If In quality, especially if you're doing quality mode, whether you cross the the balanced threshold mm-hmm. to, towards performance and ultra performance settings is another thing. But when you put it on quality, oftentimes it's worth the compromise to get extra frames. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think we went through most of the main subjects I wanted to go through. And as often happens, I had you on here longer than planned as we usually just keep talking I, and j- there's a whole page of stuff we didn't even get to but oh, yeah? i think that was a we can save that you know i think for something else or like maybe i'll ask you about it later but yeah. um i have to ask is there anything else you wanted to discuss though we went through zen rdna consoles yeah i think that we covered most of it i was just trying to think if there was something on uh the question sheet that we were missing that was kind of good uh, yeah, I guess I, I apologize in advance because I am recovering from back surgery, so I might be a little bit more foggy-headed than usual, but, um... Oh, well, I had, you know, I woke up to a a, a tree <laughs> going through my yard. I, I, I haven't even dealt with that, guys. Like, I woke up, and I looked out my window, because I let my dog out, and then I go, like, get dressed and, like, you know, brush my teeth, and, like, I look out the window in my bedroom, and, like, 
my dog's just standing there like confused <laughs> like this massive tree taking up almost all of my yard there's yeah. tornadoes and like high winds in nashville right now yeah. and then she was like actually kind of scared of it <laughs> she was like tom look at all these sticks we have so many sticks you can throw for me now <laughs> that was also like because there while we've been recording i'll just hear outside Oh man! And across the street, there's a house that had like a 100 foot tree go through the three story house. Yeah. Like, so it's pretty bad here right now. So, if I feel a little off, it's because I've got to go call my insurance company again after we get off of this. And it's uh, you know, we still did it for almost three hours for the fans. So this yeah, is why yeah. they all need to subscribe to Patreon and send us everything and send you RDNA three graphics cards. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, the only thing I was, I was hoping to maybe, uh, obviously, hopefully check out my game that, uh, the next game that massive damage is working on coming out in the, well, we should be showing something on it hopefully by the end of the summer. So at least, well, at a minimum, if you don't come on broken Silicon, at least for a segment, you could come on die shrink and promote it to us and then we'll promote you. Yeah. Hey, yeah. We could, we, you know, we could, we could even use that as an ad in the main say, Hey, you know, buy their game and they are just on die shrink. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, it's, I was more just, uh, you know, if anyone's interested in talking about red red tech, so I will be at GDC in what is it? A week and a half, two weeks. So oh. if any, if anyone wants to reach out to me or meet up, then you know I'm happy to talk to render techs or interesting game developers or other things there. So I guess uh, yeah, that's primarily the only other thing I was hoping to say. Um, well, buy know, games from Massive Damage Studios and <laughs> gift them, buy them again, give them to your friends. Uh, your your Twitter's in the description, so they'll be able to find you for GDC or for buying yeah, your game ten times I, in a row. I have my open, uh, my, uh, my DMs open on Twitter. So feel free to follow me on Twitter and see some silly pixel art there. And, um, yeah, anyways, and the next game we're working on isn't pixel art. So it'll be, uh, I picked up on that reading between the lines of the things you were saying this episode. I'm like, Oh, they're going for something else. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty, um, I can't, I can't talk about specifics of it, but it is UE5 and it's using a lot of custom UE5 features. So hopefully it's something that people find pretty impressive. But. Well, yeah, this, uh, this must be very extra exciting for you then. Like, cause I know you're extra in- interested in like rendering and like now that your team's doing that, that must be a lot of fun. It's, it's probably crazy. challenging, but <laughs> it's been crazy because we scaled so much. So we went from like Star Renegades and Halcyon 6, both of those games I was either the primary artist or the only artist just doing Mm -hmm. the vast majority of the art assets for the game to being on a team of now I'm the art director and there's roughly there's 10 people on my team under me. So, you know, going from that to having two uh, tech artists or render tech, you know, three 3d modelers, three animators. And, you know, that's, that's a pretty big scaling. It felt like my I was always kind of waiting to prove myself with art and games because I made games. I've made games. I've loved games. I've loved art. I've done things involving all of them for so long. And then the way that it turned out at the studio is it felt like, I mean, I'll use Zelda as a reference, but I don't know how many people get Zelda, but it was, you know, when we proved that we can make a like to the past, they asked us to make Ocarina. We proved we can make Ocarina. They asked us to do Wind Waker. When we proved we could do Wind Waker, next thing we do, we were, making assets like breath of the wild. And that happened in like four or five years. 
So it's kind right. of crazy. You didn't have through. decades to do it. Yeah. You didn't have, you know, five years per release. It was like each milestone, they would up the standard or we would up the standard. Well, no, we think we could do this. And then we would prove that we could do it. And then we continued to do that over and over again. So it's been cool working in a studio, seeing it grow so fast. And also just the scale of how tools have changed in game development and also the scale of, um, what teams are necessary to achieve specific things and Mm -hmm. then where resources restraints and like the, the surge of tech artists having artists operate between programmers and, um, artists and that like the whole space is so dynamic and interesting. And there's so many ways to make games that are really beautiful or intriguing. So I'm really hoping to, to make games that kind of show all of that to people and, um, yeah, use use hardware in really interesting ways. Optimization is something else entirely. So hopefully, when that pass comes, we can. <laughs> I'll have a lot to say about that stuff in the future as well. But it's always it's always been great talking to you. So I'm sure you will. And you know, I imagine the next time, whether I mean, even if it's just this year, maybe we'll. Hey, they they fixed or they didn't fix RDNA three. If they didn't fix RDNA three, maybe like half of their lineup performs. Sub- wildly better than you'd expect and we'll be able to talk about that and then you know maybe we'll have battle mage rumors to follow for three years that it takes to actually (laughs) launch the damn thing and uh we'll probably have zen 5 rumors by then too so um sounds like good talking points yeah but uh for now i want to thank you for coming on remember everybody you can find him in massive damage studios in this description uh subscribe to moore's laws dead on youtube hit the uh notification button like our videos share them subscribe to broken silicon your podcast app and give us a review support us on patreon to ask guests like brian questions and um again thanks for coming on and thank you to everybody for listening well thanks so much for having me this podcast was brought to you by the youtube channel and website moore's law is dead moore's law is dead and broken silicon are trademarks of their creator tom that guy is me and i am indeed the creator editor writer and showrunner of moore's laws dead podcast videos articles and other media however it's not just me moore's laws dead is a team with broken silicon co-hosted by my brother dan audio editing by gerard cortez renders being done by the industrial designer jean philippe clermont and special assistance is also provided by carmen cry and carrie no sugata as well find all of our information at www.moreslawsdead.com on the about slash support page in the event you do want to hire me for consulting work, hire Gerard for audio work, hire Jean-Philippe for industrial design work, or you're interested in working with Carbon Cry or Kerry No Sugata as well. You can also find our long-term sponsors on that page if you want to show them some love for putting food on our tables. Or you can also mail us some love. You can send letters or hardware donations to the following address. Moore's Law is Dead, P.O. Box 60632 in Nashville, Tennessee, zip code 37206. Although, to be honest, the best way to show Moore's Laws Dead some love is to support us on Patreon. Patrons are what makes Moore's Laws Dead content truly possible. Every month and really every day, depending on who you're talking about, me, Gerard, Dan, and John Philippe are working tirelessly to provide a steady stream of content that we could not keep doing unless we knew the work was possible without being reliant on sponsors dictating every little thing we put out. Don't get us wrong. We love our sponsors, but we love directly working for you, our fans, 
much more. If you have any extra money, even a couple free dollars a month, consider supporting us directly on Patreon. Those couple of monthly dollars will get you access to the exclusive podcast Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to ask guests questions, and of course, access to the Moore's Laws Dead Discord full of like-minded people who I am sure would love to meet you. I am one of them. Additionally, higher tiers get access to early, ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the ability to ask questions in all Broken Silicon episodes and Loose Ends live streams ahead of the recording, and the entire back catalog of Moore's Law Z podcasts, in addition to having thanks in the credits of videos and podcasts depending on the tier with other perks available as well. And hey... If you cannot afford to support us directly every month, please do share Moore's Law is Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family and on social media and websites like Reddit. And give Broken Silicon a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app of choice. All of this does really help us so much. But like I said, this podcast would not be possible without it. the patrons directly providing predictable and reliable support every month. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher supported levels. Brad Medlin, Drita Full, AV, Anthony Greffa, Greg Pataki, Muhammad Kawari, Brett Jones, Aaron Close, Little Germany, Jan Rauner, Daniel Hyde, Treadbird, Brian Riggleman, Dr. Foreman, Sam Miller, Deke, Josh Law, The Mechanical Philosopher, Terrence Herod, SNES Chalmers. Tom Bailey, Gray T. Wanchuk, Andrew S., Frank Zielinski, Daniel D., MJB1, Eric Jackson, Justice Brennan, Joshua L. Herrera, Falco Malev, The Boss Haas, Nicholas Buckner, Spamtrum G. Spamtrum, Jonathan Lord Starstrew, General Drips, Blake, Franco Frederick, Matthew Lazier, Jensen Wang, Nathan Mose, Aziris, Gregory S. Acker, Dominique Cock, Jake Dude 23, Jake Martin, Cameron, Venti CZ, HardForeRoom.com, Original Ross, Slicky, Lance Basser, David Cowden, Ricky Tan, Chris Frey Butler, GZ Ziggy, Sarcastro, Stefan Hart, David Sebastian, Meat and Pork Stew, Tim Robb, Luis Correa, Ian Clifford, Jesse Jeskowiak, Travis Gooding, Holden Mobley, Nanian, Chris Rich, Deepest Learners, Mad Zutsu Taylor, Stefan Coates, Michael McGee, Chuck Glidden, Sammy Malas, Greg, AWS Danny, Patrick Crow, Abel Chief, Brett Summers, Miltham, Stephen Dick, Tommy, John, Bruja, Mark Mitchell, Mac Daffy, AC, James Anderson, Marshall Pierce, Mark Raidmaker, Dave Schultz, 3DS by 08, Hal Buma, Narithio, Matthew Landavazo, Stefan Koladic, Henry Zhang, Judson N, Keith Moore, The Grid, Michelle Pell, D31337 Antics, Joseph Kelly, Earth Taurus, Hexapuma, Chrysantine, Jim Ferreira, RB Racer, Keith Moore, Kita Abdul Kadar, Precision, DNA Tech, Radeon Technologies Group, John O'Shea, Royce Meyer, Charles Russell, Reginald Ari, Blushba, Teak Autumn, Jackson Miller, JSMMH, Nathan Zink, Mean Dean Cal, Andre Jacques, Gaiman Since Reagan, Jeff Sadler, Jordan Simkovic, Loophole 35, Winstar, William Wilkley, James I. Raider, Corey Ladar, Nelima, John Shin, Justin Bustle, Kelpin, Austin Haggerty, Roger Davies, Shea, Julian Leaked, Corey Chappelle, Evan Dingle, C2, John Iverson, Michael, Aaron, The Eternal Dreamers, Jansen, and Guillaume, Him Sagung, Derek Lambing, and of course, thank you to Sahara for the music. <laughs>